So we're more than halfway through July. Does anyone else feel like the year is starting to speed up? Maybe a little bit? Or maybe that's just me. I mean, uh, any- it, I don't know what comes out like after, like, what's the next game that comes out after, like, Tsushima and, like, Paper Mario? Because it feels like, yeah, there's games that were just released, but now what? Yeah, so this week has been an interesting week. Oh, yeah, this is the Tetracast. We're starting. Uh, <laughs> and we had two uh, we had two releases in the last couple of days. We had Ghost of Tsushima, and we had Paper Mario the Origami King. Now, ostensibly, neither of those are RPGs, really, even though I think they both have some, like, RPG DNA, sort of, if you squint one eye. Because <laughs> uh, Ghost of Tsushima has, like, Ghost of Tsushima has, like, the skill tree, and then Paper Mario has the, the history that we've talked about, obviously, a few times. But uh, we'll see if we talk about those as we go into this uh, this week's podcast. Uh, we have a couple news things, some things from about a week ago from the Ubisoft Forward event. Uh, not a lot of RPG coverage, but obviously some stuff about Assassin's Creed. We got some uh, news about Final Fantasy and a surprise sequel uh, news drop that we'll get into. But uh, obviously, we're going to be talking about what we've been doing for the last couple of days. Or in, uh, I guess I should introduce who's been here. I'm Brian. Uh, we've got Adam with us. Hey, guys. We got James. Hey. And we uh, we found George and we rescued him and we, we dragged him back Hello, here. I'm back again. <laughs> Very intermittently, it seems, but I am here. All right. Uh, who wants to go first about what they've been uh, playing? Well, I've been playing basically nothing but a ton of Castlevania games this last week. Um, funnily enough, uh, if you guys didn't watch the... Uh, I'm talking to the listeners here if you guys didn't watch the uh latest uh, casual mode we did uh metroidvania from team La- uh, ladybug uh delit in wonder labyrinth uh which is a record of lotus four game lotus lotus uh, whatever you get yeah, what we I mean. never decided which one was right um so playing through it obviously you you could see a lot of similarities with like symphony of the night you know like castlevania symphony of the night but uh, I have to admit that I was a bit of a poser, and I actually hadn't played Symphony of the Night before we recorded that uh, casual mode episode. So I was still in a Metroidvania mood, and I didn't know what to play for a bit. And I noticed that I still had um, Symphony of the Night downloaded on my Vita because of like PlayStation Plus. I just hadn't played it. Uh-huh. So I, fig- I figured, well, might as well. Um, so I kind of played through that in a day and a half. And I was like, you know what? Aren't the uh, Game Boy Advance Castlevania games on the Wii U Virtual Console? So I bought those, and I've been playing through those. So I played through Symphony of the Night, Circle of the Moon, Harmony of Dissonance, and I'm about an hour and a half into uh, Aria of Sorrow. So uh, quite a lot of uh, monster slaying action. Now, I need you to like come up with a... Uh... A fully formed thesis about the you know the comparing and contrasting all four of those, and I'll need it by tomorrow. What I will say is that um, uh, Castlevania, like you, you see Metroidvanias all all the times. So it's a very popular genre nowadays, especially for indie games and the like. But most of them are explicitly not RPGs. 
But going through some of these older Castlevanias, I definitely feel like that an argument could be made that they're just as much RPGs as they are, obviously, Metroidvanias. You have level ups, you have stats, you have different equipment, just as I was like kind of surprised with how RPG-ish uh, Wonder Labyrinth was. I mean, obviously, that's very much a Castlevania thing that uh, Wonder Labyrinth was borrowing from that I guess not many uh, modern-day Metroidvanias really take advantage of. They're much more uh, like the Metroid side of the equation when it comes to like character progression rather than the Castlevania, or at least the post-Symphony uh, of the Night Castlevania progression where you do have levels, you do have stats, you do have equipment, that sort of stuff. Yeah, the Metroid side is a little bit more focused on that sort of lock and more key, get a tool, yeah, with platforming alongside. So I guess I can briefly kind of talk about what I feel about each of the games. Obviously, of the games I've played so far, and I'm only like a bit into Ario Sorrow, Symphony of the Night was the best, no doubt. Though I did have some problems with it that I feel like um, maybe I would have liked it a little bit better if, I, if it had been one of my first Metroidvanias. Um, I feel like the level design in Symphony of the Night is a bit hit or miss. And really that's something that I guess I should get out of the way. I feel like applies to all of the Castlevania games I've played so far. Aria of Sorrow is, per is perfectly fine for the most part. But um, something of the night. Um, so this is technically a spoiler, but I'm pretty sure anyone that's interested in Castlevania has already yeah. knows about the twist with something yeah. of the night. With the inverted castle and whatnot. And I knew about that going in, so I was interested to see how the level design was, well, designed with that sort of twist in mind. And once I got to it, I was a bit disappointed because it definitely felt like the game wasn't really actively designed with that inverted uh, level design as a consideration. Like, it feels sort of disjointed, especially for some of the uh, rooms in the castle. And really the major change with the inverted castle is you have recolored enemies that do a bit more damage. You have a slightly different color palette. The music's a bit different. You do have some unique bosses. But when I heard about the inverted castle explored all over again, I was thinking, oh, that's the entire second half of the game. But not really, because you don't get any movement upgrades after you get to the inverted castle. So for the most part, you're just rushing through it because you already know how the rooms connect for the most part. Yeah, there's you really don't have no to backtrack. Um, there's like there's really no like clever so Symphony of the Night is the only one that I played, also because it was on PS Plus, and I was like, you know what, let me at least know something about Castlevania. Uh and when I first played it, I actually got I did all of the things required to get to the inverted castle, except I didn't do that mid-game boss fight correctly there's a specific thing you have to do into the, in the fight in order to access it and i guess i didn't quite gather what what that was until i looked it up uh but then when you get to the inverted castle it's it feels kind of like it's brute forced like there's no room where you're like aha this is clever when this is upside down now the room feels like this it's just like well this feels awkward but you know i've got so many movement abilities now you can still make your way through uh it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of a clever way to extend the length of the game because Castlevania games really aren't that, all that long. Uh, well, I say that having only played one of them. The Metroidvania games I've played are really not that long for the most part with a few exceptions. Uh, 
but I feel like you, you can kind of tell in the second half of Symphony of the Night that the bespoke design decisions aren't there. It's just, we'll take what we've already designed, put it on its head, make sure it's playable. But there's really not, it doesn't feel like there's a ton of thought behind it outside of the novelty itself. Yeah, and I feel like I should mention for folks listening that haven't played Symphony of the Night is that when we're saying that the inverted castle doesn't feel like it was explicitly designed, well, the original castle wasn't designed with the inverted castle in mind. Most of that's to do with the fact that, like, once you get the bat power up in Symphony of the Night, pretty much any of the actual platforming kind of goes out yeah. the window. So it, even if they hadn't changed, if they hadn't made any like active decisions to make it so that platforming could work both ways, which I think there was like some consideration at least. There was at least some. But even yeah, if they this... hadn't done that, they could have just been like, well, p- players can just turn into a bat, even though it's kind of slow and it's kind of, the controls aren't super great. <laughs> but yeah, um, like there, was, there might be a few places where like a ceiling was originally stair-stepped, quote unquote, so that when you turn it, it becomes literally stair steps uh, or ramped. But in a lot of times it just feels like, and I'm kind of digging back into my memory here, but it just feels like a lot of high ceilings now in rooms where the doorways are really, really tall and far up from the ground, but you can bat. So it doesn't matter. So you can still make your way through. It just kind of feels yeah. brute forced. What I will say about the ever two games, I, well, the ever two games I finished, I guess I should say a uh, circle of the moon was the first game boy advance, um, Castlevania. And then from what I can tell, it was actually a launch title for the system in North America. Um, so this one, it's still a Metroidvania, but from what I understand, definitely has much more in common with some of the classicvania titles. The controls are decidedly more, I wouldn't even say necessarily stiff, but there's definitely a bit more weight to the controls. Like, if you've played, like, say, La Moana or, so- or something like that, then you probably have a decent idea for what I mean when I say that the controls feel like they're a bit more sticky. Not in a bad way, anyways. Um, That one was surprisingly difficult, but kind of for the wrong reason. So the main difference is, well, the main differentiator for uh, Circle of the Moon is the uh, dual setup system, which uses cards that enemies have a chance of dropping, and you can set like a group of two, like a pair of cards, like one from each row, if you have them, and you can basically activate special abilities. Some of they can be stuff as simple as your whip is on fire, or you get like extra defense depending on how much of the map you've uncovered to, to the ability to summon like uh, summons and all sorts of stuff like that. A few problems with that. One, the dual setup system itself is inherently broken, like literally broken in the sense that if you uh, activate your card, your power-up, pause instantly, and then go into the uh, card select screen, you can set it to any of the combos in the game, even the cards that you don't actually have yet. (laughs) So, like, at the very beginning of the game, you can just use an overpowered combo if you want to, like, breeze through everything. And the only only downside is is if you disable that uh, spell, you have to reset your cards to to, uh, 
combo that you do have access to. So you can activate it again and then pause to switch back to what you wanted to use. Um, which normally I wouldn't have done that, but the cards themselves are RNG drops from enemies, and the enemies that can drop them, the percentage drop for, for those cards is anywhere from like 1% to like 4%. So it's not super great. And there's like sometimes only like specific enemies that drop it. So like obviously you can grind them out if you want to to get those cards, which is like I guess what the game wants you to do, because to a certain extent, the game feels like it, even without like grinding for cards or any of that sort of stuff, there's specific bosses, particularly the final boss, that outright feel like the game wants you to grind for, which is uh, very much like an RPG, I guess, in that sense. I was actually thinking that, like, oh, is that the true sign of an RPG if you're expected to grind? Obviously, I think but, uh, the, the, the uh, best designed RPGs don't obviously yeah. require grinding but um overall, for the yeah. genre. overall though i'd still say that i actually really enjoyed circle of the moon i i feel like the soundtrack is actually fantastic which is funny because the game boy advance didn't generally have a very good sound chip in fact it didn't have a sound chip it was all on the cpu but um yeah the level design is more open i'd say than symphony of the night and obviously there's less detail in the graphics because not only is it a Game Boy Advance game, it's a launch title Game Boy Advance game. In many ways, it definitely looks like a souped up G uh, Game Boy Color game in the graphics department, but not in a bad oh, way yeah. in most part. Um, but on the flip side, uh, Harmony of Dissonance, the other one I finished, it has fantastic graphics for the GBA. But the level design itself is super restrictive, reuses a bunch of the same concepts in different parts of the map. And the soundtrack, which was my favorite part of the Circle of the Moon, was the soundtrack. Uh, I'm pretty sure the soundtrack in Harmony of Dissonance just runs on the Game Boy Color sound chip baked into the system. Because it does not sound good. <laughs> like, infamously so. It, like, the actual compositions are fine, but... The fidelity of them is is bad. On even pure for a quality basis, it sounds incorrect. Yeah, yeah. There's like a few. There's a handful of songs that do sound good, uh, but uh, coincidentally, there's like only a handful of songs that the uh, Symphony of Night uh, producer, well, um, composer did for Harmony of Dissonance. I wouldn't be surprised if those are the songs I liked. But um. So, if uh, Circle of the Moon felt sticky and it felt like more like a restrictive classic vania type experience harmony of dissonance feels very fluid like from the start of the game you have access to a a forward dash and a backwards dash and you can chain them together almost in depth like per indefinitely like just spam the shoulder buttons to dash either way so from the very get-go you feel like you have a lot of movement abilities even if you're still restricted to a regular jump at the very beginning because, well, you can just move around super quickly, even from, like, the word go. Uh, the problem with that is, is that I feel like Harmony of Dissonance, it, which I'll just be flat out, it was the least favorite of the ones I've played so far, even though I did enjoy it. Um, the map design and the way that teleports work is annoying. And 
by the time I got to the mid game, I started realizing that it wasn't just that they added in those dashes so you could feel like you're moving faster, but because if you didn't have those dashes, you would never finish the game because it's just that much of a slog, especially in the mid game. It gets better in the late game, but in the mid game, it's just that much of a slog to continually backtrack through these repetitive environments. Because like I said, the level design reuses a lot of the same ideas. Like there's like these uh, vertical shafts that have bases. I swear to God, there's like four or five of these locations in the game that look almost exactly the same from like a layout standpoint. The only difference is maybe some of the enemies in them and the tile set used for the graphics. So to put in perspective, um, Circle of the Moon was not actually directed by the same uh, director, Igarashi, that did um, Symphony of the Night. But Harmony of Dissonance was, and it feels like in some ways they were trying to reuse uh, some of the ideas that made Symphony of the Night so iconic. One of those being the inverted castle. You don't have an actual inverted castle in Harmony of Dissonance, but instead you have two alternate versions of the same castle, kind of like in a... It's not an exact comparison, but kind of like in the Sonic CD, like future and past system, if that makes sense. Yeah. Where there's like slightly different layouts and like you need to do some things in the ever castle in order to progress in the ever one. And as a concept, it's neat. The problem is, is that at the very beginning, there's so the castle itself can broadly be described as having three sections. There's the left section of the castle. Well, I guess four sections. There's the left section of the castle, the right section of the castle, the um, basement of the castle, and then like a central like location that you can kind of explore on on both in both castles. Then like once you unlock the uppermost portion of the castle, things kind of start falling into place, and you can explore everything. The problem is, is that for like two thirds of the game, you can only explore like two of the three main sections, and either of the castle states so like let's say you can explore the left and the right of the castle in the castle a but you can only explore the right and the bottom in castle b the problem with that is is that if you need to like if let's say you get a power up in castle b in the basement and you need to get all the way back to the left part of the castle to you um to use that new ability in castle a there's no easy way to just go from the basement in castle b to the left side of the castle in castle a i see where this is going so you have to go to a warp that's all the way at the right side of the castle in castle b change to castle a then go to the center of the castle to go back to castle it's just it it's it's a slog honestly i can't it's just... think of the uh of a specific analog but the description here what, I, what my brain is going to is the uh the two worlds in metroid prime 2 where you're switching between light and dark and you can only do that at certain places if i remember right at least at the start it's been a while since I've played that game, but in general, the the two worlds that are overlaid on top of each other like that, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. But yeah, so I'd say if Circle of the Moon, I was enjoying it the most at the beginning and the middle of the game, and then it kind of fell off at the late game. Army of Dissonance, I was enjoying a bunch at the beginning because of the, the fluid movement, the uh, combat. Uh, one other thing about Harmony of Dissonance is that instead of having the dual setup system, 
the game has a different system where you have different spell books that you can find in the game that are like of different elements. And you can equip those like one at a time and they change the uh, abilities of any of the sub weapons that you pick up, um, which has the uh, direct consequence of I never use like regular sub weapons my entire time playing Harmony of Dissonance because if you equip a spell book, it uses your MP, which replenishes fairly quickly. And the spell versions of sub weapons are just that much stronger so there was like no reason to actually use your hearts which are used as currency for sub weapons in the castlevania games because it's like well why would i do that (laughs) um yeah so i enjoyed harmony of dissonance at the beginning because i had the fluid movement the combat felt great the game itself looked visually a lot more impressive than uh, circle of the moon but the mid game was just a slog. I, I I honestly almost dropped in the mid game. I was super close, but once you finally get into the latter half of the game and like you get to the top of the castle and you finally have a bridge to uh, basically let you explore all of the castle for each of the alternate castles, and then you unlock like these different um, teleport rooms, it becomes a lot better and especially when you're trying to grind out the last few things you need for the true ending in harmony of dissonance it feels way more fluid it feels way it, the level design feels a bit better and it's just like i don't know what the hell they were thinking with that mid game because it just so much backtracking oh yeah my it's, God. A, it's a fine line you have to walk because obviously some degree of backtracking is sort of uh, it's rewarding to be kind of routed back to a familiar place, but it's very clear. Now I've got this tool set at my disposal. I can do this, go here and do that now. To but if you're going too far, go ahead. To a certain extent, I think what also annoyed me about Harmony of Dissonance is that I think the backtracking wouldn't have been as quite as bad if, and I do mean if, the map was a bit better. Because the map doesn't really showcase... so. The way that the map worked in Circle of the Moon was great. It was simple, but if there was um, the way that things worked is that if you entered into a room and in order to progress, you needed to have a specific power-up, that gating would be at the very beginning of the room. So that if a room itself had like two squares on the map, you would first enter the room, get stuck, leave, and then you'd know if you looked at the map, oh, I, w- I only explored half of this room, I bet that I needed a power-up in order to progress here. Harmony of Dissonance doesn't do that. So the problem is, is that there's a variety of different power-ups that you need to progress, obviously, in Harmony of Dissonance. The problem is, is that most of the time, it's like at the very end of a room, or it's like right on the corners of a room, so that you can't explicitly tell just by looking at the map which areas you need to go to once you get a power-up oh it's, so, i see what you mean so there was meant so eventually like just like a third of the way through the game i knew that was going to be a problem so i just looked up a map which usually i don't like to do but it was just so annoying because it's like i this is a pain in the ass to keep track of it because it's not like there's even any color coding on the map for anything, any rooms where you need a specific power-up. It's just, ugh, God, it wasn't very well designed. Um, and now, now that I think about it, I actually have played another set of Castlevania games. I did play all the Lords of Shadow games. 
<laughs> but uh, those are more like action games, except I guess maybe the middle one. But that's a totally forgettable side scroller Castlevania. Uh, I mean, hey, those same developers went on to make uh, Samus Returns on the 3DS. Yeah, and that one was received pretty well. I I will say that I think that those games have some wonderful art direction, especially when you explore the castle in Lords of Shadow 2. I think, especially if you play it like on PC at a nice resolution and frame rate, it looks really, really nice. But that's about the extent that I can praise that game really in any ex- <laughs> to any uh to any degree. Uh, I enjoyed the first one for what it was. Um even though I haven't played many Castlevania games, Symphony Night and then those three, which are kind of ugly ducklings of the series, I do kind of miss, like, I miss Castlevania, even though I really wasn't that into it. It just seems kind of a shame that we have this kind of this pillar of gaming that's been around forever, kind of relegated away to whatever Konami's doing right now. <laughs> I don't well, know. Well, I mean, at least Bloodstained was a success. Um which I'm going to actually end up playing that. Probably not after I finish Aria Sorrow, which is the last one I've been playing. But uh, especially since I basically played like six Metroidvanias in a row, I'm going to have to take a break for a bit. Um, but um, Aria Sorrow, I'm only about an hour and a half into, but I, going into it, I read that it's by far the best of the GBA Castlevanias. That's what I was going to say, is that it, it seems to have a really good word of mouth around it. Yeah, I've even seen a handful of people say that they enjoy it more than something in the night. So I'm excited to see how I feel about it once I'm done with it. Um, all I can say is that the movement ability is kind of like an in-between comparing Circle of the Moon and Harmony of Dissonance. You don't have the dashes, but also the level design doesn't require you <laughs> to dash that much. Already I have have access to like three fast travel points. Whereas at this point in like Harmony of Dissonance, I had one, which meant I couldn't really fast travel. Um, the combat's interesting because there's this thing called the soul system where um, you have a So it's kind of like the cards in Circle of the Moon in the sense where you have a chance of a monster dropping their soul when you kill them. And there's three types of souls. There's a traversal soul, which basically is um, bound to the R button which um, gives you access to uh, specific uh, movement abilities, like a glide or something. There's red souls, which are used for attacks. And uh, one thing to note about Arya Sorrow is that, you know how I mentioned that Harmony of Dissonance kind of invalidates the uh, sub-weapon system because like, you're only really using the um, books that you want, like spell books, to... Uh, amplify those sub-weapons and it doesn't actually use any of like the hearts if you're playing the game normally. Well, um, Aria Sorrow basically entirely gets rid of the sub-weapons in the sense that they're replaced with these um, monster soul abilities that you can just um, equip and use um, using the same button inputs that obviously every Castlevania uses for sub-weapons up plus the attack button. Um... So there's that, and then there's also, like, an additional slot where you can have, like, a passive buff. So it's pretty interesting so far. It's not super complicated, but I don't want Castlevania to be super complicated, I guess. Like, I feel like the uh, dual setup system from Circle of the Moon was the most interesting it's been so far, but I'm obviously still pretty early into uh, Aria Sorrow. 
The level design is pretty good. Visually, it's not as good as Symphony of the Night, but then again, it's a GBA game. You have cartridge limitations. It still looks good, though, and I'd say it looks better than Harmony of Dissonance. But the soundtrack is also better than Harmony of Dissonance and very much more in line with Circle of the Moons. So, like, so far, it's feeling like a best of both worlds, and I definitely can see why it has so much acclaim even this early on into the game. So I'm excited to see how I feel about it, like, as I proceed, like, deeper into it. Yeah, it's um, it's. I think it's on its face. It's kind of cool that they're willing to really change it up from game to game, rather than just like continually adding and then layering and then becoming this indecipherable mess of systems. They're willing Here's to throw the part. Here's the funny thing about that. So, when how long do you think the gap was between the each of those three games releases? The GBA games. Six, uh, six months. Hmm? Six months. I was going to say, like, maybe a year each, year and a half. I don't know. Yep. They were uh, basically a year apart. So they basically released a full Castlevania game on the GBA a year for three years in a row. The only reason they didn't release anything in 2004 is they were working on the, on Donna Sara for the DS. Man, I, I miss when Castlevania was kind of like this near yearly thing. Sorry. Even though I haven't played it, like I said, or haven't played many of them. Well, if you have a Wii U, you can play them on the virtual console. Oh yeah, I was going to ask about that. You're, are you actually like playing them? I'm not uh, playing through them the on Wii, Wii U. Yeah, I was going to say no. you're probably emulating them. Well, Wii U would still be emulating them because virtual console. But oh, what I did is I bought them on the Wii U virtual console, and then I'm emulating them on my Vita. So it's like I don't feel bad about that because like I even posted the literal receipts on my Twitter. So it's like I I bought the games. I should just yeah, assume, like, see. if you if, if you don't specify where you're playing it, it's on the Vita. I'll just make that I mean, now. I mean, unironically, the Vita has, like, the best D-pad out there. So if I'm going to be playing something that's a platformer and I can play it on the Vita, I'm going to play it on the Vita. That's fair. That makes sense. So any final thoughts on your Castlevania marathon? Um. It's not really final until I finish Jaria Sorrow, so... That's true. But uh, um, does Symphony of the Night stand out between what you've played uh, so far? It's still definitely classic, but especially now that I've finished it, I and Super Metroid, I can say, at least in my opinion, that Hollow Knight is the best Metroidvania out there. <laughs> which, I've played uh, that one as well, and yeah, it's that one's a great game. I've heard good things about that one. Yeah. Hollow Knight, like, well, just completely unrelated, but, like, all these Castlevania games are relatively short. And Metroid games are relatively short. Hollow Knight is not short. It's not, if you, like, yeah. If you play all, like, all of the content, like, do the DLC stuff and, like, the Pantheon, man, that's going to take you, like, over 50 hours. It's more akin to something like a Souls game's length than a regular Metroidvania. Yeah, I admitted defeat in that Pantheon. I defeated Nightmare King Grimm. And I felt really proud about that. And then that last, like, God, whatever DLC, I was like, all right, I admit defeat. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Hollow Knight's great. You should play it. But also play, like, Super um, Super Metroid and uh, Castlevania Symphony Night first. So you have uh, that historical context. And good games remain good games. Don't just say, oh, those games are old. 
that's my that's a general opinion of mine that I wish was more yeah, common. Hey, I guess. you could play Symphony of the Night on PS4 because there's that. Um, um, I, I think they ported Symphony of the Night to the PS4 in like 2019, 2018, relatively recently. So, yeah. I, I don't know for certain. They did. It's called Castlevania Requiem. It's got Symphony of Night and Rondo of Blood. So, Adam, uh, while you have while we have you uh, awake, what have you been playing over the last seven days? So, one game I played over in the last week or so was a game from NIS Software, Nipponichi Software, just recently released by NIS America. And it's a roguelike title called Void Terrarium. It's it's not really like an indie game, but Nipponichi Software has this sort of initiative that they've been doing over the last several years now, where, and I actually really appreciate them for this, where that that company is most well known for the Disgaea series, um, but they've been putting out a lot of games that aren't really tied to any brand or franchise or canon or anything, of in various styles. Um, sometimes they really hit it out of the park, like with uh, Labyrinth of Refrain. You know, it was just kind of a new IP, new style of game that they hadn't really done before, and that game was really great. Um, it has a lot of Disgaea DNA in terms of like the artist and the uh, music, but it's a new game but they also have these smaller scale titles too and this one is a roguelike um, called void terrarium it just released on playstation 4 and nintendo switch and it's a small game so it's not like this really deep you know intricate mechanically dense game but the premise of this game is you are playing as a robot on a like a wasteland world it's kind of has vibes of of Oh shoot! What's that? Wally. Yeah, yeah, it took you a minute just to get the name of it. <laughs> I was actually thinking yeah, about that. Like, is this where he's uh, going with that? All right. Yeah. Now, in this world, as far as you know, the human race, humanity, has basically perished. There are no humans left. But then you kind of just randomly and suddenly uh, stumble across a lone human girl who is basically alone and needs help. Helpless. Yeah. Yeah. Helpless. So um, you find another robot named Factory AI, and basically your the two robots basically make a decision right there to we need to save this girl and we need to protect her. And this world that you live in is this it's a, it's a wasteland, but it's also very toxic. Robots can live in it fine, but she can't. The human girl. So what you have to do is you build her like a hence the name of the game a terrarium to live in. And so effectively how this game works is you go out into a dungeon and it's a roguelike style game. And if yeah, it's, it's mystery dungeon style. And if you're not familiar with what that is, you basically go on these randomized dungeon floors. It's from like a top down perspective. You move one square at a time um, and enemies kind of move in turn and lock with you one turn at a time. These dungeons are randomized. You basically go through uh, what you're looking for are items and materials to craft pieces for the terrarium. And so like your main mission structure in this game is you're effectively given, you know, a goal. Let's go to go to this dungeon and it, it could be like the bio lab or something. And 
I need you to find these bespoke items to craft these certain things. Like, for example, the first thing you need to find for her is like a giant fishbowl, basically the case of the terrarium. Makes sense. And yeah. And so that that's really the only once you get the premise of this game kind of underway, it pretty much just stays that throughout is that you're just basically building this girl a better and better place to live in this wasteland. It's pretty simple. And so you basically go into a dungeon, you fight these enemies in this turn-based style. Um, it's a roguelike. So that means you, when you start, when you go into the dungeon, you start at level one each time. So you start at basically at flat and you gain experience. You find, uh, you can find weapons, you can find shields uh, and other items like grenades uh, in the dungeon that basically power you up and they make you stronger. And also, when you level up in this game in the dungeon, you gain... It, it's it's kind of like a roulette in a way where you, you get a skill at each level up, but the skill you get is... It's random. It's not like absolutely random, but it's sort of like random out of a pool of skills, so we don't know exactly which one you're going to get. And what I'm getting at is it's very... There is, a, there is an element of randomness because the level ups you get, the skills you get, they are sometimes passive, sometimes active skills. So sometimes it's like an actual thing you can perform. And sometimes it's just, you know, a bonus to your strength or whatever. But it is kind of randomized and it just kind of depends on luck of the draw in a way in terms of the skills you get and the items you pick up, which is true for a lot of roguelikes. And are there some skills that you uh, like really hope that you land on early? Like, I hope oh, yeah. I get this there one are the first some, few floors. I'm, I'm trying to debate or to think of what I want to what I want to emphasize certain the skills actually that you get are ranked basically one star to five star. And so like five star skills come up very rarely, but are of course very good. For example, one of the five star skills is rather than just attacking the single space in front of your character, you basically attack all eight spaces around your character. It's a grid. So all eight spaces around is basically a full circle. And so like that's an that's an incredibly useful skill because if you get surrounded you can attack all your all the enemies surrounded surrounding you all at once. But overall just in general, it's got a very solid I know you don't like this term Brian, but gameplay loop, it's just it's kind of relaxing in a way. Um it's not very hard. The game is not very hard. There's some moments where it gets a little tricky, but it's kind of relaxing. Um the whole tone of the game is kind of this somber moody tone a lot of the soundtrack has this piano or kind of this relaxing electronic sort of music um the art style is kind of it's got muted colors a lot of like dark greens and blacks and it's grays. a very chill game um, yeah i saw very you playing chill is actually describing. a good word um to, to to use and so like there is a nice progression underneath the systems as well so the, as I said before, the main goal of this game is to craft components for your terrarium. And this is actually where this, you, you might've mentioned this on a previous podcast where you want roguelikes to have some sort of permanent progression underneath the actual like resetting roguelike um, style. I think, that's, I think James talked about that where it's like the, the difference between a roguelike and a roguelite is yeah. the extent the extent to which there's permanent progression to crutch on in case in case you can't get on by by pure skill alone. Right. And there is a low-lying permanent progression underneath this game as well. Whenever you craft an item for the first time, so let's let's just say you um there's actually another 
element to this I haven't described yet, but let's just say you craft a bed for the girl. The girl's name is Tariko. The first time you craft that bed, you get a bonus to your stats. Depending on the item, sometimes it's your strength stat, sometimes it's your defense stat, sometimes it's your HP. And some of these bonuses that you get when you craft an item are things like um, the terrarium is cleaner or Tariko stays full for longer. And that actually gets to some mechanics I haven't described yet. This game is half roguelike and half like Tamagotchi. And if you're not familiar with Tamagotchi, for whatever reason, they're basically these little mini toy electronic pets that were popular in like the late 90s and early 2000s, where these pets, every once in a while, you need to check in on them, you need to feed them, you need to clean them, and so on. And Toriko almost works exactly like that. In fact, it seems very heavily inspired directly by that. Um, it's got a very similar interface that you see when you're when you're in the dungeon. So you have to feed her every once in a while with items you find. You have to clean out her the, the charm every once in a while like she's a pet. And sometimes you get upgrades that make it so you don't have to do that as often, which are very nice because then you can go into the dungeon for longer periods of time. So every time you craft an item, you kind of get a bonus to your stats or to Toriko's basically health and cleanliness meters, make them, making them last longer. And so whenever, so basically you're, you're enticed to craft basically at least one of every item as you can because you get a bonus for each one you do. You can craft like more than one tree, for instance, for, for the terrarium, but you only get a bonus once. And so that's kind of your underlying permanent progression in the game is you want to craft each item once. And the more items you craft, the stronger you get kind of as your baseline. Because eventually then your strength might start out with like a plus 20 modifier just to begin with. And eventually those first couple of floors for, for those dungeons you traverse end up being kind of trivial because you're you're already boosted in your stats. Yeah, so even so though on. you might start at level one every time, you're like a buffed up level one. And right, it's interesting exactly. that you talk about uh, Tamagotchi because the game that I think about when I saw you playing this was... Digimon World 2, which is an old PS1 game that is also a roguelite in in several ways, though it was obviously I played it at a time before I had any idea what that was. Uh, and then obviously Digimon has that common DNA in terms of Tamagotchi style, like digital creatures, like more on its face. So I just thought that was an interesting little comparison. Yeah, Digimon World 2, that game specifically does have the same sort of mystery dungeon floor level layout where floors are random and, and you move one step at a time and so do the enemies yep okay so overall my thoughts on the game like it's solid it's perhaps better than i expected like i kind of expected it just to be kind of junk but it, it kind of comes together pretty well um i do have a few issues with it um one there are like eight or so dungeons in the game but they kind of all look the same. They kind of all behave the same. There are no, let's just call them dungeon gimmicks. They All the dungeons basically work in the same way. And so what that effectively means is when you go into a dungeon to find stuff, they if, if the UI didn't tell me which dungeon I was in, I would, prob- I would probably forget because they all just seemed the same. Um, there's not a lot of variety either aesthetically, like how they look, even most of the music tracks are, I like the music, but they're not extremely distinct other than like the final dungeon. Uh, and then like the enemies you find in each dungeon are 
pretty much the same. There's some slight differences, but it's very slight. And it just kind of, I kind of wish there was a little bit more of a distinct style between like, oh, this is clearly the bio lab that I'm in, or this is clearly the machine plant because they all just look the same. So it kind of would have been maybe cool if like the materials you were gathering had some sort of thematic tie with the area that you were at. There are actually a few mechanics I haven't described, but just for the sake of, you know, I don't want to weigh us down in mechanics talk, but it's um, the, the, the material system, the, the material gathering system is nice in that every time you go into a dungeon, even if you die relatively quickly, or if you, you know, run out of energy or whatever, you feel like you make progress each time you go into a dungeon. So it's got that roguelike loop where every time you go in, kind of, in a way, start over. But you do feel like you're gaining something each time you go in that you keep. Um, materials never go away. So it feels like, you know... So if you, go into a du- if you go into a dungeon, pick up two items, and then die, you're still ahead of where you were. Exactly. Um, gotcha. So sometimes with roguelikes, you feel like you're doing a you're you're on a run in a dungeon and then you unexpectedly die or whatever and then it's like well that was a complete waste of time and maybe i'm now even i'm now even set back a bit um because i have to catch up or reclaim my stuff or whatever but this game doesn't really do that it's more of a rogue light in that sense but it is perhaps a little bit thin in some of its substance um it's got a somber ending there's actually two different endings they're both kind of bittersweet but it's, I think it's like a $25 game digitally, just to kind of give an idea of what type of game this is. It's not a full-fledged, full-priced release. But it's it's like a, it's like a double-like like, game. Yeah, if you like roguelikes, um, you don't mind trying something a little different. You know, I gave it a 7 out of 10. You know, it's solid, not fantastic, not poor. Just kind of a pretty good game for what it is. We should, we should be think, allowed to have just pretty good games. Not everything is a 10 or a 0. Right. It's about, also just to mention, it's about um, it's about 25 hours long as well. So it's the type of game, though, where most of that 25 hours is dungeon delving. So you're not, it's not like, there's not that's like a story-driven yeah. Yeah, like premise behind everything. That's Most of that time is kind of just dungeon diving. So it's, but it, that's about the length it took me to finish it. Well, cool. And you said this was only Switch PS4, not PC or otherwise? Yeah. I feel like a lot of... It is kind of weird. It's I actually probably should have mentioned this at the beginning. This game is from the same creator at NIS who did The Firefly Diary and Rose in the Twilight. The Firefly Diary is a... Actually, I think both of those games are side-scroller type games. They're not RPGs. But it, this game is from the same creator, like creative director there. And same sort of art style. Actually, I believe the creative director is the art director as well for these games. Um, so they kind of just have, I forget her name. They, they have this person doing these, these sort of projects for them just for these smaller, t- these smaller scale indie-like releases. And I, I kind of appreciate them for that. No, it sounds like a really chill game and something that, you know, if you're, if you're waiting for the big releases to land or you're not into, I don't know, Ghost of Tsushima or something... Why not? And it's priced, it seems like a fair... It's not. They're not asking for $60 for this. So it seems like it's kind of in a fair place. I, I guess to answer your question that I totally sidestepped, even though previous games came out on PC, this one did not for whatever reason. It's just 
PS4 and Switch. So fair enough. And thank you for talking about that. And you did also write up your thoughts into your obviously the review you mentioned, which is up on the website. So go ahead and give that a read if, in case you want to read more about Void Terrarium. Uh, George, you're the last one to go. Uh, I'm guessing that you've been headfirst into Ghost of Tsushima for a few hours, but I don't know that for certain. Uh, you would be correct. I ah. this, this sort of seems to be the problem that whenever a big release comes out, I will I'll be like, yeah, I'm definitely going to play that. And then when it comes to talking about it, I've played like four or five hours. Uh, so I can only give like a, a base opinion so far. But well, the game's only been out like less than a day or barely over a day. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I, uh... God. The thing is, to go from The Last of Us Part 2, which I will still call probably one of the best... No, not probably, definitely one of the best games I've ever played, to Ghost of Tsushima, which is, like, coming up, like, it'll probably be pretty good in the end. Like, I, I think I, I'm enjoying it, and I think I can definitely see myself enjoying it for the the 30 hour campaign but like i just don't think it was a good idea to end the generation with this instead of last of us part two like that that's just semantics it's not really doesn't really matter it is kind of interesting how um that uh this seems like this generation at least on the sony side of things got kick-started when uh, Second Sun came out because it wasn't a launch game. It was like a launch window game or like came out a few months after launch. I forget if it was a few months or more like six months. And now. Yeah. No, I just remember. I remember when the PS4 came out, there wasn't a, the, you, you had like that Resogun and a few other things. Uh, um, Shadowfall. But then I didn't I didn't feel like the generation really got kickstarted until Second Sun came out, which I still think is an amazing looking game, just visually, yeah, even though I think really. its substance is a little thin. And now Sucker Punch is kind of bookending that with Ghost of Tsushima as kind of like the swan song of PS4. This, this is generally my issue so far, is that I, I I like a lot of what it does, but a lot of the discourse so far seems to be look how pretty this game is and like there is no denying that it is probably the best looking game I've seen on a console. Uh, like in terms of art direction, like it is stunning. Like it is constantly like, okay, I'll take a screenshot of this. I'll do some photo mode. Like that is really cool. And second, second son was like that as well. But I, I'm just, I just haven't got like a, I, it hasn't hooked me yet. It hasn't made me stop and go, okay, I know what I'm playing today. Like I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to play Ghost of Tsushima, obviously. I'm kind of there like, yeah, or I could put some time into Paper Mario. Like, and that that isn't a good sign for me because, like, for example, The Last of Us, I, you, you guys know I, I've, I've gone through it twice now. I've platinumed it. Like, that had its hooks in me properly. Uh, so I guess I should I should stop, like, mulling around and just say sort of what I've done so far. Um, so for the first two hours, you have the sort of standard uh, big cinematic piece. Um and then you like just do like a few missions, get your equipment back. Okay, this is where the story's going, uh, and that stuff was actually pretty cool. Like I liked where they're going with that, and I, I I love the world, and I love the idea that they're doing like the story of a wandering samurai who is like having to test what honor and his code really means. That stuff is all really cool. 
but it's like there's one moment really early on so i wouldn't consider spoilers where Jin has to like go against his code by uh assassinating someone which is considered cowardly like and against samurai way and it's like it's this really cool moment where it flashes back and it shows how he learned that lesson in the first place and you can tell it really means something that he's like gone against it and then there's sort of like uh i, I don't know is it ludonarrative dissonance there's some word some coin for it but like uh yeah, that's right. Some I think some people overuse that term, but yeah. let's just continue I, your thought. I almost, I almost had uh, a jerk reaction to say, "Oh, now this is where we jumped the shark." Yeah, <laughs> like it, but like that's just that's just a, a term. But it then goes to you, like instantly assassinating a bunch of other people and it not mattering. Like I feel like I don't, I don't know that that seems like a, a petty Th- that, a petty. There, it, no, I get what you mean though. Like it reminds me of the, of the like the Tomb Raider games, one of the newer st- of the trilogy. I forget which one it is, where there's a big story moment about taking your first life, and then all of a sudden you're doing it without abandon. Like okay, I feel like they I, I should guess... have just they're, they're, they they could have done this a little bit more smoothly instead of like making a big deal out of it and then going back on it and saying that this really wasn't that big deal that they initially framed it as. I, I guess the thing is for me because it is clearly such a big story beat that he, I, I presume he turns into the ghost of Tsushima, like that's where this plot is going. Um, I, I think the problem is my biggest issue with the game so far because Sucker Punch for me they've always done so well with characters, so Sly Cooper, Carl McGrath, uh, more so an infamous to them one but like both are pretty cool uh delson row they always do really good protagonists and they always do really good side characters and the story is always what keeps me going in sucker punch games because it's just like maybe it's not particularly deep but they always have interesting characters and interesting moments and like so far Jin hasn't like given me much at all like because i guess because he is a samurai and they're supposed to be like emotionally like controlled so i, I guess that's kind of the point but to then have that mixed in with like pretty standard open world stuff, it just doesn't really, it hasn't done too much for me yet. Uh, that's that is just to say, like, it's still a good game. Like, I can I can see that there's a lot of love poured into it, and I'm like, I am enjoying it. Like, but it's sort it reminds me sort of like of the Far Cry games, which are the sort of games I will put on, and I will do the story stuff and then i will stick on a podcast or put some music over the top of it and just like go through all the side stuff just kind of without thinking like it's kind of like junk food game and i really didn't want that from something from sucker punch because uh arguably they are my favorite of the sony developers like infamous one just have some perspective the sly cooper trilogy is the best out of the mascot platformers for me like it beats ratchet and clank it beats jack and daxter uh infamous i prefer over uncharted and i prefer over resistance uh and then even second son i loved like a lot so to then go to like yeah this is pretty good is sort of a disappointment i it, it, I'm, i think i'm tangling it a lot with my own expectations for the game and semantics of okay well now sucker punch aren't winning against this like maybe i'm i'm just being stupid 
because it hasn't like instantly knocked me out like the last of us did but i don't know so far it's like rocky start i guess it, it just seems like the one area where it really excels is the visuals and then everything else is just kind of more in line with so many other games that it doesn't stand out seems to be kind of the way you're describing it yeah I, there are there are a lot of stuff i could and I, in fact i will um give it some positive <laughs> Uh, I don't want to just like complain about it a bunch when that would be dishonest because I am I'm still sat there like oh that's cool and this is enjoyable. Uh, I love for starters I love the exploration uh, when we were all watching that the state of play trailer and they're showing off the exploration then and I remember saying this exploration looks incredible I love it like I might have to talk about this on the site at some point and that has definitely stood true because even though it seems like a kind of like a oh okay yeah the wind guides you to your objective rather than the objective marker that seems like not a big deal it actually really does work in the world so you'll you still have to go to your map and mark where you want to go but then from there you're just following the direction of the wind and it like it'll pick up leaves as it goes like trees will rustle and it just like it feels really epic i hate i hate that word epic is an annoying word but like it does uh and then there are other environmental cues as well, like birds that fly around and lead you to places. And all of that, honestly, I think that's the sort of mechanic that I could, I would love to see in every game that comes out. Like, I would adore... Like, imagine, imagine you're playing something like Xenoblade Chronicles, for example, and instead of having to check, like, the map, you just... Look, there's environmental cues like more more obvious ones that lead you to where you want to go like that that'd be awesome i, I think every game could benefit from as little mini map use as possible yeah, yeah i think that's kind of the good that's kind of a sign of a of a good like environmental artist where you don't feel like where am i supposed to go again let me check my map figure out where my arrow is pointing okay it's up here and then when you're halfway there you double check to make sure you're on the right path uh when, if it's designed in a way where it's the, the environment is laid out, there's, there's, and it kind of goes and you talk about obviously that it visually looks stellar and that kind of goes hand in hand with the environmental design where there's moving parts. It's, it's not just a backdrop for you to play your game in. It's actually involved in leading you from point A to point B, showing you what you need to do without saying it outright and like a tutorial pop up. Which is what Xenoblade yeah. does a lot, where it just kind of says, okay, this is how you're supposed to do this. We'll explain it in text, and then you go do it. Instead of that and more like, natural, like, gamified learning curve. And, and that, that, that's cool. Like, in terms of, I think in terms of presentation, it might be one of the strongest games I've seen in a while, because confining that, which isn't just like, oh, okay, it looks really pretty, which, like I said, it does but it also comes into the gameplay of it. So it's not just pretty for the sake of pretty. And it's not just, it's not uh, just window dressing. No, like it feels like a, I hate this term as well, living, breathing world. It actually does (laughs) feel like that. Um, So all of that's really impressive. The photo mode, it kind of, kind of stunned me a bit because I like my photo modes. If anyone follows me on Twitter, which we've discussed, no one, no one ever follows me on Twitter from this. But, um, I, I use photo mode quite a lot. I did it for The Last of Us Part 2 on my second playthrough just to just have some more fun with it. Uh, and this is the sort of photo mode that makes you go, oh, every photo mode is going to have to feel like this now because this is just like 
the pinnacle of it. Uh, in instead of like it just being a photo mode, like everything still moves. You have to see it in motion to sort of get it, but all the particle effects, all the environmental effects, when you go into photo mode, they're still going. So like Jin will be stood still or like about to unsheath his sword, but like the leaves will still be blowing around him, and it's just oh, like it's just, it's just yeah, it's just really cool. Like it's it's there's a lot of stuff in the game that makes you go, oh, that's really cool. Uh, but when it comes to like the general gameplay sort of feels like a, a hodgepodge of a bunch of mo- like recent games which i generally don't have a problem with like if you're taking from if you take a bit of batman you take a bit of assassin's creed you take a bit of sekiro those are all fantastic ingredients like why wouldn't they make a really excellent game cake but it just kind of makes it feel it, it lacks any flavor of its own i think it's kind of derivative by design yeah like, how, how does the combat feel uh, well, like exactly like those those three elements. So it's a bit, it's a bit one enemy attacks you at a time, and you try and counter it. But it's not like counter like in Batman. It's more counter like in Sekiro, where you're trying to parry them, and then you can open them up for a few attacks. Uh, you can use like, uh, like I said, a big part of the story is that he goes against the samurai code, and he's sort of like playing dirty. So you can use like bombs and arrows in the middle of combat. Uh, I haven't got into that much because uh, at the moment I've just been doing a few side missions, exploring the world. Uh, so th- this is the thing. I'm I'm trying to be incredibly careful not to repeat my Horizon mistake where I was like, yeah, this game sucks. Like, I'm so over it. And then actually it comes together playing, by the end. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, that was fantastic. Like, Ghost of Tsushima could really, 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 really pick up in the six, seven, eight hour mark. And I would have spent my whole time talking about it on this podcast like yeah well, i mean kind of i mean first impressions are valid even if they change over time even in a positive direction either direction so it is cool I, I that you're keeping wait. an open mind though saying like you're you're allowing yourself to be convinced otherwise from your first impression which i think we should all try to strive to be yeah i wouldn't want to especially with my stupid habit of buying collector's editions of games like <laughs> I, did you I buy the really collector's edition of this Yes, and it is awesome. I only just opened it like earlier today, but it's now it's now on my uh, uh, my cupboard, and it just the the mask is just really cool. But m- more to the point of like ignore the cool collector's edition. But I've spent a significantly more amount of money on it than most people probably would. So I think that gives me the sort of like the the chance to be like, give it every possible chance it has. Like I will I will not give up on it until i've completed it um and i am hoping it turns around because like sucker punch are incredible they're they're incredible developers they make incredible games and i wouldn't want i I wouldn't want to see them just copy not even copy but not have something distinct to their own turn the generation on because it kind of makes me wish they'd just done another infamous and like I, when Ghost of Shima got announced, I was like, yes, they're doing something new. That's really cool. And now I'm sort of like, I wouldn't mind a new Sly Cooper or a new Infamous. Just something a bit well, more distinct. It's, it, it's not like you're really down on it. It seems it seems like you just think it's fine and it's not really next level like The Last of Us 2 was. Is that kind of sums up how you feel? Yeah, like, I mean, we keep but... using phrasing like turn around or whatever, but it's not like you think it's awful. You just think it's it's good. 
I would. I, I'm doing a lot of things I hate right now, but if Hedging. I were to right now, I would. Uh, I would say it's like easier seven, seven, eight. Like it, it's still a, a really good game. It still has a lot of enjoyable things. It's just I am not the sort of gamer now that goes, oh, okay, thirty hours on a big open world map with lots of question marks and collectibles and enemy camps you can infiltrate. That doesn't do a thing for me, unless yeah. I love gameplay mechanics so if you if you did that with the last of us part two which i love the gameplay mechanics of that's a really satisfying feeling game i could maybe see myself putting that time into a big open world map to clear but in a game like ghost of tsushima where i'm like yeah this is pretty fun it doesn't do much for me yet I hope it does though. I I hope next week I come back. Yeah, I'll, yeah. I was gonna say like maybe maybe, maybe uh, a week from now you'll come back and be able to see uh, which way it ended up curving for you, whether it ends up surpassing how you feel about it right now, or if it ends up just keep going down the route where you're as at, kind of more of a lukewarm up, stage. As long as it doesn't end up like a Days Gone, which today is the only Sony exclusive game that I haven't fully finished. I've ne- I've nearly finished it, but. That that game was a drag. <laughs> like, uh, did you play it at launch? Because apparently, like they over time, they've added in a bunch of like quality of life features and like. Oh, uh, yeah. I like I've I've kept an eye on it. I, I played it recently as well, and they've definitely improved a lot. But like, the base gameplay, and the characters and the story are the problems. Like I I was never there. Like this is glitchy, so this isn't good because that sort of thing doesn't really bother me that much. Well, it bothers me a little, but not enough to stop playing a game. But if your main character is an unlikable jerk who just shouts all the time... Like, this is a complete tangent on complaining about Days Gone, which is a game I just find okay. Tangents are fine. Um, But uh, I've forgotten his name. Deacon. Deacon St. John. Uh, He... It's so bizarre. He walks around the map, and in an attempt to sort of, like connect you with him he talks himself which is fine like almost all game characters nowadays do that they'll have a journal that they write in just so the player can see it or they'll voice things out loud but the way he does it is just really weird it's almost like he's yelling at someone like next to him he's like oh i have to go kill some more zombies damn it like this is ridiculous and just every time i'd be sat there i'm like i wish i could just turn him off like anyone else give me a give me a give me a voice slider specifically for self utterances like i don't i don't need lara croft to tell me like oh if only i switch that lever over there but how do i get up like oh thanks for you like come on (laughs) but like here's here's, that's that's my uh days gone tangent an okay game but ghost shima hasn't done anything that egregious so far and none of its gameplay mechanics are dull enough for me to be like down on it completely i'm just not blown away yet besides and anything but the- a visual spectacle though oh the, the music's fantastic as well and i think about it ah like yeah so i i would hold back I would, well don't just hold back because of me but if you're on the fence about it then like stay on the fence it i if you had been on the fence about the last verse i would have kind of pushed you off on one end <laughs> and said no just trust me, like, please try this game so you can have a look at, like, all the things it tries to do because it is trying to do things. It is trying very hard to do something that no other game, well, not no other game, but, well, no, in fact, we're gonna, I'll get into The Last of Us after this now, but 
uh, I would have pushed you for that. I won't. I wouldn't push anyone for this. I think. Gotcha. It, that makes that's a good way to put yeah. it. Did you want to talk about Last of Us a little bit, or? Uh, I I will do like a very quick, now sort of spoiler. It won't be very quick though. Nothing about it. I'll just say this. Uh, All right. Are you going to go into major spoilers or no? No major spoilers. I'm gonna I'm gonna go into what I would be the first spoiler of the. Okay, so just for anyone listening, we are going to start doing fringe spoilers for Last of Us Part Two. Okay, so Abby is arguably the best part of the Last of Us Part Two. She is the second character you play as. Uh, You find that out pretty early on that you'll probably be playing another character but then like halfway through the game it builds up to this massive cliffhanger and you've just gone through ellie's whole journey and you're like okay that was probably pretty bad for her like mental health like she's probably pretty scarred as a person now and then it like it shows that abby is now involved and then you have to do abby's bit so what the game does like which is fantastic it's like oh my god what's gonna happen and then you have to go through abby's side of it a character that you already hate because she's done something pretty awful to a character you love earlier in the game and you have to see her side of it and at first you're just like okay yeah like i know what the game's trying to do it's trying to make me like her and see that maybe they're not so different after all but like just it it works like you you want it to not work you want to just say like yeah get on with it i just want to see what happens like i want to see do they kill each other what happens in the end but like by the end of abby's journey you're like actually like i don't know if i really want ellie to come out of this like better off i i, I kind of want so you're immediately see. cynical about it because you, you you see what it's trying to do but then it's it's put together well enough where your cynicism is overrun by what it was trying to do it ends up yeah, being so i see what you mean it, it's sort of like it's like i see a lot of comparisons to metal gear solid 2 which i guess on a face value it is because it's like oh there was a second character that you're gonna play as the whole time but in this, it's in Metal Gear Solid 2, it was Raiden's story, and they tried to play it off as snakes for the marketing to make it a surprise. But in this, it is still Ellie's story. Like, anyone who would say, oh, I hate this game because Abby's in it and Ellie's barely in it would just be wrong because it's like 60 40, Ellie's Abby. So, um, one second. But, um, do you start, do you play the first half of the game as Ellie and the second half as Abby, or does it just does it go back and forth? So, so you play. An hour with Ellie, then an hour with Abby, and then you play about ten hours with Ellie, ten with Abby, and then you finish it back off with Ellie in sort of a time skip. So I'm not gonna discuss the complete ending. I will say this though. You you go through Abby's section, so it you go through her journey that is runs parallel to Ellie's, but it obviously skips to the start of it once you get to the end of Ellie's. Uh so you know what's happening. But the way it builds it up, you start liking Abby a lot, and then eventually it gets to the point where Abby and Ellie face off, uh, and you're actually controlling Abby. You have to like literally beat the hell out of Ellie, which was like really difficult to watch. That was one of the moments I was on about where I was like, I don't really want to like press the buttons on this controller. I don't really want to interact with it because uh, like it is brutal. Like she is choking the life out of her. She she's like beating her face in and like ellie's running off like choking on blood i was literally there like oh my god like this is kind of pushing how far i can how far i can play this 
which is obviously what it's intending to do, which is fantastic. Um, and then Abby spares Ellie and is like, look, this, I'm paraphrasing, obviously they don't talk like this, but this whole journey of revenge doesn't need to keep going. I'm going to spare you. Don't ever let me see you again. This is done. Uh, leaving Ellie alive, Dina alive. And then it cuts to a few, like maybe 10 months later, uh, Ellie and Dina have had a kid. They live on a farm. They've got like the perfect life. And yet Ellie can't let go of her PTSD, of her character's death. And she goes after Abby again, even though everything's all done with, uh, which takes, th- this is where the game took a really weird turn or, or purposefully weird, but like it takes you from Seattle and puts you in Santa Barbara. Uh, so you're suddenly in this like whole new area. You're playing as Ellie, like trying to kill Abby again. And you're just like, at, at this point in the game, you've probably been playing it for like 25 25 to 30 hours so like for me especially who was trying to get through it all in one one or two sittings i was like tired i was like oh god like more game to play okay like it it was a lot and obviously there's, there's a lot happening in the story anyway so it's just a lot to process you're feeling a lot and it's all purposeful like you walk away from it at the end you're like oh okay like Naughty Dog wanted you to be like, oh, I am so done with like this journey of revenge. Like, you could just be happy, Ellie. You could just let it go and move on and be happy. Like, you understand why she wants to do it, but like, you're also just like, just stop. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want you to be the protagonist anymore because you were just making awful decisions. And that carries on right till the end where she does find Abby, who was like, who went to go find the fireflies and was then captured. And she's like in awful condition. Like, if you've seen Abby, like on Twitter, you know, like she's like a really, she's got a really muscly figure. Uh, she is just like so skinny, like one punch could kill her. Um, and Ellie like almost goes to forgive her, and then she's like, no, just, I'm just sorry, making like- sure. Like, uh, we, I mentioned that these were fringe spoilers. Do you want to go further or just kind of leave it there? I just, uh, I guess I started accidentally going like. I, you know, I will, I will say that they go to have a final confrontation, and the results of that, and everything to do with the ending, had me shaking. I, I was, and this sounds, I hate how dramatic that sounds. I hate like to say that and imagine someone rolling their eyes, like, okay, yeah, we get it, you like the game, but just from pure, I don't want this to happen to either of these characters. I don't want this to be an unhappy ending i don't want to participate in making this an unhappy ending it was like a genuinely stressful experience we sat there playing it and then you finish the game uh and you just don't stop thinking about it it is just such an incredible game uh, so i this, still this is where we go back to saying trust you just play it. yeah yeah play it like even if you don't agree with what happens the way it's been crafted the risks it takes in the same way that Metal Gear Solid 2 did, like in having another character take over a beloved character and then maybe make you like them as much as the other character. It does that so much better than Metal Gear Solid 2. It does it so much better than any other game I've seen. And the way it plays with the player as much as it does with the characters is just incredible. And to tie that back in, Ghost of Tsushima doesn't really take (laughs) risks looks really good 
but it hasn't done anything like that's what it's oh my god yeah so play last of us part two and if you like the look of ghost shima then yeah probably play that too that's well said all right so i think i'm the last of us the last person to go not the last of us the last of us to go Um, if you skipped ahead on the timestamps, we are past last of us spoilers because i'm going to talk about a really really old game Uh, over the last week i played fallout the original fallout the 1997 isometric fallout uh, i was just kind of on a whim and adam can uh attest to this that i was literally like sitting here being like i don't know what i want to play because yeah so brian and i were chatting and he's like what do i play what the heck do i play i have no idea what i should play. i i i had just uh, kind of wanting the it. um yeah sorry i had just uh so after the podcast last week um i had just I logged into Monster Hunter and for a few hours I you know beat my head up against Elatrion, which was the monster that they added. And he is very, very difficult. And he's very he's got this very specific way you're supposed to fight him. And yes, this Monster Hunter tangent is relevant. Uh I'm not just throwing in Monster Hunter because I can. So I finally I finally partnered up with just a friend of mine who me and me and him duoed it. Because I feel like in Monster Hunter, ever since Iceborne, duoing, playing with one other person, is generally the most convenient because you 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 scale up the monster a little bit, but you're not like how Monster Hunter World works. If you don't know, is that your whole party only gets a limited number of deaths allowed. So if you're playing with three other people and they all die, but you don't, you fail. Or if you're playing by yourself or with one other person, you're a little bit more accountable for your group's success. So if you don't do poorly, you're more likely to win. And then if you play with one other person, you get your Palico cat partners to help you out. So I finally beat Elatrion. I only killed him once, but it's designed kind of where he's not really meant. To, you can farm him if you want, if you want to make like his equipment. But anyways, I beat him once on Saturday night. And then I was like, what do I do now? I had just beaten Doom Eternal. I logged into Monster Hunter and did what I wanted there. Now what? And then I was just like poking through my Steam library. I was that like desperate. And then I got Fallout and Fallout 2 for free at some point when Bethesda games came back to Steam. Uh, I think it's because I have Fallout 76. I'm not certain. And then I'm like, you know what? I kind of want to play Fallout, the original. It's out of my comfort zone. I don't usually play games that are more than 20 years old that often. But I was like, you know what? Let me let me just let me just do it. Let me just grip my teeth and do it. And before anything else. Is this your first time playing the original Fallout? Like this is yes, played before. Oh, okay. So I had played, I had played Fallout Three when it came out, like fifteen years ago, twelve years ago, whenever it was. Um, then I played New Vegas, and then I played Seventy Six. So I kind of like have only played the Bethesda Fallout's. Yeah. Wait, even did you play one. Four? Oh yeah, I also did play Four. Um, you just completely. No, no one remembers Four. <laughs> but so. But one thing that I actually did write about about a year and a half ago now is that I played the fan mod Fallout New California, which kind of is a non-canonical tie-in to both the original Fallout and New Vegas. And before I played the original, I didn't realize that New Vegas also has a lot of explicit ties to the to the original game as well. Like it's weird because three New Vegas and four, if you just play those three games. They kind of feel like three branches tethered to the same core, but not to each other that much because they're all in three different locations. Because one's in obviously the capital wasteland, one's in Boston, and one's in uh, you know Vegas. 
Uh, and that core that they're all kind of tied to in some way is the original game. And so is this new California total conversion fan mod. So that is kind of an interesting way to approach a game where I've played basically everything that has grown out of this, but not the seed itself. And that's I mean, I what think I kind of pretty common for people who have played Fallout haven't played the first two games. Yeah. Same to like Persona or whatever. Just like those two games, people sort of accept that they're there, but they're different. So first of all, getting it to play to play nice with modern hardware, because it's only a PC game, uh, was difficult. There is like a fan mod for both Fallout and Fallout 2, which is supposed to like fix it, but it doesn't quite. Um, and the fix mod is like version 0.8 or something like that. Like, I don't know if this is still being worked on or if they kind of got it to a good enough state and then it just kind of languished and never really got polished up. So I had I had a couple issues figuring out like how to play it, how to how to get it to not crash and not be buggy. But and once I got that all sorted out, I won't I'm not going to say like this game is amazing. Everyone should play it despite its age. But I did think it was interesting. Uh it's first of all it's a turn-based game so it's not like the other fallouts in any sense there uh where you play from an isometric perspective you've got a single character called the vault dweller uh and you are tasked to basically come out of your vault and find them a new water supply because the water supply that they have is basically poisoned and corroded and they're not going to survive long with, without clean water and then it basically just kind of opens up completely and it says you have 150 in-game days to find a water supply or we die which on its face is really kind of stressful where you're like oh crap now i have to like i can't dilly dally you have to rush and i think that's kind of the intent to kind of give you that little sense of tension but then what you'll learn is that 150 days is an incredibly lenient amount of time i without i did not look up a guide i did not like figure out the most optimal way to do this, but I ended up finding the this first this first half of the game, this first quest, within like 40 in-game days. So like less than a third of the time. But I do think it's kind of cool where it says like a, a lot of open world games, and Fallout's not quite open world. It's I guess it's as close as an open world game could get, maybe in 1997. But it's basically like here's your task, go do it. And it doesn't point out it doesn't put a waypoint on your map. It doesn't say you must go here and talk to this person. It just says figure this out. And then you'll talk to people and you can ask them, do you know anything about the water supply or where can I find this? And some people, some people actually deliberately send you like, I think that there's an abandoned vault over in the Northeast that might have one. And then you go there and you learn, oh, no, it actually doesn't. This place has been abandoned for years and it doesn't have any working parts. So it actually kind of throws like red herrings at you, too. Um, so I think that is probably my favorite aspect of the game is just how it's designed so openly. I think a lot of games nowadays aren't uh, bold enough to kind of give the player that's that lack of direction. I feel like a lot of games, um, that example you just gave about like someone pointing you in the wrong direction. I feel like a lot of games, almost always NPCs that give you hints or tips or like directions are almost always like perfectly accurate, uh, like narrators or whatever. And it's almost believable that like in a world like this place used to have water like over there in the Northwest, but they're not omnipresent characters that know everything that's going on in the world. So I think that's neat how it's like, I think it is might've been true, but it's no longer true. And, but 
I think that, that that's maybe a small thing, but it feels kind of neat how like the world and the characters in it, you know, not every character is omnipresent and knows exactly what's going on everywhere. But I do think it's carefully done where that's that's deliberately early. So you'll do that little that little red herring quest, quote unquote, within the first 10 or 15 days. So it's enough to kind of make it do what it's supposed to, which is what you just described without saying like, aha, this was a fake. Now you're boned. Like, no, you still have 130 days left or, or, yeah, or that probably more. So it's it's careful enough to not like screw you out in deliberately doing that. Uh, another thing that this game, first of all, there is, if you look up like modern fixes or tools or mods, this game has a lot of cut content. It feels kind of like Knights Old Republic 2 in terms of like, or Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines. Where it's some of there's some stuff where like players have tried to add in what was dropped. I never really like doing that, even if it's incomplete or has obvious holes in it. I'm like, I'm gonna play it as it was. I, I put in the fixes that like try to fix legit bugs, but not like we added back this character and how it was supposed to be implemented. Like that's a that's a half step too far. Um but it is kind of interesting where you do see like this one character will mention uh there's a spy in our midst. You should take care of them. Uh, I don't know who it is. Maybe you can talk around and figure out, you know, who they are and snuff them out. But then that, that quest, you'll 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 see the seed of it there. But it's never it was never fully implemented, so you can't actually complete it. And it's like legitimately like stuck in your Pip Boy log. And that's kind of like uh, that's not a really good look. That's really rough around the edges. But it, I guess that's just what this game was. Um, and. The game, it's not well made in terms of things like that. Like, for instance, once you find, once you complete this first quest where you find the water, it's called, it's a water chip. It's like legit, like some sort of like mechanical tool that you use to get clean water from the ground for your vault or something like that. And then once you find it, if you revisit like the earlier towns, you can still ask the people there, do you know anything about water chips? Which to me, I feel like a well-made game would be designed in a sense that you would no longer have that dialogue option available at that point, which I know can get really, really difficult. Like, I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do, especially if it's so open-ended, but it, it takes you out of the moment where you've solved this hours ago. But then if you talk to an NPC early in the game, your character is acting like oblivious. Like, did I actually already do this? I already solved the water chip, but I can still ask about it here. You know what I mean? Um, the gameplay itself is very, very slow because you'll have a whole party of characters. So unlike other Fallout games where you might have like one pet and one companion, this game you can pick up all your companions and your pets at the same time, almost like a JRPG party in a way. But you only control your character directly, almost like Persona uh, before Persona 4. Um, so you'll move and you can shoot or use an item or or whatever on your turn. And then you got to wait for everyone else to act, your party members, your enemies, before it's your turn again. And that kind of really bogs it down. Uh, and it's especially bad if there's like a lot of NPCs around. There's one quest in the game which takes place like in the heart of a city where a lot of all the uh, citizens will have turns in your battle, usually just trying to run away, but they might run up to like enemies and punch them. So like you move, then your allies move, then the enemies move, then all the citizens move. And literally like eight minutes later, that might be exaggerating, four minutes later, it's your turn again. And I'm just like, oh, this this is molasses. This is where that's one specific area yeah. where the game kind of showed its age in a bad way. Well, it's actually one thing I didn't expect. I, I kind of knew what Fallout sort of looked like, but I didn't really actually like take a look at it until I was watching, watching you play it. 
I didn't realize it to look so similar to Baldur's Gate. Um, it's got that turn-based game play rather than like Baldur's Gate, like real time with pause gameplay. But it 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 has like a very similar like visual I, look to it. I assume it's the same engine or at least the same like framework. I, I, I yeah, don't know I, I, about the technical. If I remember correctly, the original Fallout was developed by Interplay, and then Baldur's Gate was developed by Bioware, published by Interplay like a year later or something like that. Yeah, so I don't quite remember offhand like how how Bioware and Interplay and Black Isle Studios and Obsidian kind of grew out of the ashes of that. You know, it's I don't quite know all the details off, off the top of my head. But yeah, it does have that similar sort of vibe, but it is turn-based. I think it might have been a better game if it wasn't turn-based, if it was more real-time with pause. Um, so the combat's not good. The RPG, uh, well, it's fine, I guess. It, I would call it on the lower half of average. It's like fine enough. It's good enough. Uh the RPG systems are really, are really. I love how open ended it is. I love how on you're not on railroad tracks. You can kind of. It's the sort of game where, like, early on, if you want, and this actually kind of tripped me up. You can have like the enemy, the enemy faction in this game are super mutants. Just stating generically, and you can have them like take you to their base. Basically, say, if you try to be diplomatic about it, only you're way too weak at that point to really fight your way out. So you kind of end up being like. Well, that was a bad decision. So if if you didn't plan your save games carefully, you might be stuck. Like that's a sort of like another area where the game shows its age, where you kind of are expected to like have a bunch of saves and like it's 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 there's places where it's not afraid to be inconvenient to like a detriment. Um, there are like failure states in a way, not like kind of, states, but kind of like where it's like if you make this decision, this is actually a legitimately bad decision. You may not be able to work back from. Yeah, um, the game does have an ending if you do that, but it's just quote unquote like the bad ending. The last thing I will say is that I do think the game does have some interesting dynamics in terms of more more meaningful, like what it's trying to state behind. It's just the story that it presents up front. And I don't want to like act like all philosophical, but there was one specific instance that I thought was really kind of interesting. There's this area... Uh, where you end up basically in the the current version of L.A. Um, it's basically overrun by this. It's basically kind of like a lawless zone. But there's this group, there's this faction of people that uh, are well armed that basically say you, you meet them. And they are basically saying we protect the city from outsiders and invaders. And it deliberately like paints them as like these are the good people. Uh but then what you end up learning as you you talk around to different people who don't feel the same is that the L.A. is next to a den of death claws, which is kind of like a classic Fallout powerful enemy. And basically these guys say, hey, we're well armed. We'll protect you from the death claws. But what you end up learning is that they could have wiped out the death claws a long time ago, but they deliberately choose not to in order to kind of give themselves legitimacy. And then what you basically at that point, you pick a side. You can say like, well, you know, they, they are on their face protecting the city, but their, 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 their stance in the world is kind of unearned or it's kind of like fabricated. So That's you can really if you, you can if you want clear out the death clause, but then it kind of suggests like, well, if you do that, then why are these people still going to be like armed to the teeth at the perimeter of the city? Like they're no longer necessary. Um, but then... 
is that going to leave the city undefended from future threats, which are unknown at the time? And I just thought when you're picking between the two sides, I think that that faction that I'm mentioning, I, I, I can't remember what they're called right now specifically, but the armed guard, like they do the day, the game does kind of push you to say like, yeah, they're illegitimate. The better choice is to, is to clear them out, but not a hundred percent. Like there is something there where you could say like, you know, this isn't, they're, they're not evil on their face. Does that make sense? And it's stuff like that, which I actually thought like, man, like that's, that's way more interesting than anything like Fallout 4 tried to do with its like society of like synth robot, like the perfect ideal, whatever that was. Like it felt a little bit more genuine and it was worth playing through a game with dated gameplay and bugs and weird quest triggers to see a few things like that. And then the last thing I'll say about the original Fallout is that it does introduce a lot of like factions and characters and ideas that do crop up again in games like Fallout New Vegas. I don't think this is actually true, but some people might say that Fallout New Vegas is actually, and which is one of the well, most well-regarded games of the series, I think, um, is actually a sequel to the original game. And like, that's true in a sense. I think that's a little bit overstating it, but like there are like you you in the original game you meet the followers of the apocalypse which are kind of a peaceful faction of, you know, a group of people that are trying to like create a sense of of order in terms of moral order and emotional order, not le- less so the brotherhood of steel which is more like physical order, like actual like armed and technolo- technological. And you'll meet them again in New Vegas and like they'll mention characters from the original game, which at the time I'd completely missed cuz I'd never played it. And I I played through New Vegas recently like within the last 2 years, so I'm probably not going to go revisit it anytime soon. But I am kind of curious like this this uh what I when when I'm recognizing things kind of backwards but other people recognize going forward, going to New Vegas and seeing the callbacks where I'm kind of seeing like the call aheads, if that makes sense. So that's Fallout 1. I don't think it's a great game, but I think it's an interesting game. I'm bookending this with the same thing I lead it, led off with. Uh, I probably will play Fallout 2 at some point just because it's like the last real gap. And I, I wasn't really intending to be like a Fallout completionist, but at this point it's kind of like, why not? Um and because fallout 2 i guess like fallout 1 i know this is such a rudimentary metric but if you go to like the website how long to beat fallout 1 has like a completion time of like 20 hours where fallout 2 has a completion time of like 40 or 50 and obviously Mm -hmm. that's yeah that's just a number on its head but it kind of gives you like a very low level glimpse about like man fallout 2 must have been a really ambitious in some respects so i kind of want to try it and see like man did they just make the world huge or did they just add a bunch of quests or what did they do so I, I might not go into it right away, but I am I am planning on it. It's on definitely on my list now. Where before both those games were just kind of like tucked to obscurity in my Steam library. So what is the general reception for Fallout Two? Like I've always heard really good things about One, but like under the basis sort of like what you're saying, where it's like very interesting and good groundworks for a universe, but like some of the stuff's a bit outdated. Like is Two quite well regarded? I almost feel like those two games are kind of treated like two parts of the same whole. I feel like when people yeah. talk about the original Fallout games, like you're not a true fan if you played, didn't play it before three or whatever, because Bethesda is kind of in a lot of ways, a punching bag for a lot of people, whether you think that's earned or not. Like this was what the series was doing so well before they were under that banner and they canceled, they canceled the original Fallout three and they're the boogeyman in my eyes or whatever. 
And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of th- I think a lot of times people kind of just pair those two together. And I, as far as I, and I'm not super into it. Like I'm not an expert, but I'm not an expert. But that's always a great <laughs> a great segue <laughs> to a sentence. But I, I don't, from my outsider's perspective, I don't think people really delineate between those two games that much. That's just my impression. Like they're kind I, of treated I, like, I yeah. So yeah, hopefully. Hopefully Fallout 2 is at least stronger in terms of like feeling finished and maybe less buggy because it seems like that first game was sort of maybe kind of getting their feet wet sort of thing like kind of just getting the systems in play right (laughs) and then on Fallout 2 they can actually design around what they had already had the groundwork for so yeah we'll see. And then uh, the last game that I wanted to only talk about a little bit because it just came out was the Origami King. And Adam was also playing it, I know. Uh, I haven't played a, a Paper Mario game since Super Paper Mario like over a decade ago. And I know the Origami King. It's kind of in a weird spot because we covered it on our website because there were original rumors that it was back to its RPG roots. But it, it really isn't. But that doesn't mean it's like inherently bad. I was still interested in it. And to be frank, there's not a whole lot of other games coming out right now. Now, between this and Ghost of Tsushima, I was more interested in this. Um, it's it's kind of exactly what I expected it would be, in a sense. Like, I'm not really surprised in any way. It's kind of like a witty, charming adventure game. Like, it's got... It doesn't really focus much on resource management. It doesn't really focus much on being, like, this involved combat system it's it's more lax it's it's just kind of like it's not chill in the same sense that void terrarium comes comes across but it is chill in the sense where it's like you get a ton of coins combat is not that punishing it's just a little fun story like if you haven't played a mario game in a while and you want to and you don't mind being inundated with toads everywhere and mario and luigi like and this the sort of snappy almost fourth wall breaking dialogue that you uh that you get in these sorts of games I think for me, it had if I had if I had played Sticker Star and I had played Color Splash, and then I was then going to Origami King. I think I really would have been like well worn of the idea by now. But since I hadn't, since it's been a long time since I played this sort of game, I'm, I'm enjoying it a fair bit for what it is. Even if it's not, even though if, if I know I would enjoy it more if it was what it's not. You know what I mean? I'm not going to try to judge it for what it's not. I'm going to try to judge it for what it is. And for what it is right now, I've played through like the first chapter. And it's it's fine. Like I know that's I not the highest of praise, but it's fine. I feel like maybe we should talk more about this next week when you and I maybe had a chance to go through more of it. But um, one thing I will say now, kind of reflecting on what I said uh, a couple weeks ago about like color splash, it feels like it deliberately removed some of the elements of color splash that I whined about, to be frank, because it knew that those were not well received. Things like, like things, the, the things, things, yeah, like the things. things that are literally <laughs> called things, because those effectively, as I mentioned previously, were just sort of like you have to have this exact item to fight this boss, and if you don't, you're you're out of luck. And you and you know it, it was just kind of this weird lock and key system that kind of was just not very fun at all. And then there was other elements as well that I mentioned that were sort of like luck of the draw randomness that just for no reason whatsoever would just be annoying or or uh, inconvenient for example in color splash there's a chance that 
your progress in a level can be reset from this. It literally, this is going to sound so silly, but literally like a shy guy sucking paint. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds so weird because he basically just decolors an area. That's kind of the theme of that game. But uh, Origami King has a similar system, only you're kind of filling holes with confetti rather than paint. And as far as I can see, there is no randomness that that can be undone. And also, in Color Splash, there is a chance that in any battle, Kamek will show up and kind of basically just make things harder for you. They're like, haha, now you can't see your cards, or haha, now you only have a limited number of cards that you can use. There's nothing like that in Origami King. It feels like they just sort of like, all right, I don't know what they were trying there, but they just left them on the, on the, what do they call it? Cutting room floor. They're just like, this is gone. (laughs) Yeah. So, it's like we're gonna focus on the things that we think that I think, anyways. The Color Splash did well at as an adventure game, and kind of remove the things that were just tedious, annoying things. I, I have. Oh, go ahead, George. Uh, my main question is about the combat. Like, how does is that entertaining? Because that's the main thing that makes me go like be against playing it. But the rest I, I, of it, I've two comments about the combat first of all it is not very punishing but i will say that i i just fought my first like mini boss which if you remember from the trailers the bosses are kind of inverse from the regular battles where instead of mario being in the center of this dial where you where you're turning and flipping characters around you start at the outside and you have to like make a route to the boss and you like you spin these certain rings that are concentric of starting going into out and then on certain segments of this of the stage are like arrows that will direct Mario to a certain part of the boss or give him a power up or heal him. And that I actually thought was like, I've only fought one boss so far. And that I thought was actually like really engaging. Like that part I actually thought was kind of cool. It's just the standard battles, which are more like if you're able to line up the Goombas or the whatever in, in a line or in a cluster, then you basically win. Like if you do that at the start of the battle before you even swing your hammer, you basically win. Um, yeah, I guess if you don't manage to line them up properly, you can make it a lot harder on yourself. But it's it's battles are really just a source of coins, and then use the coins to buy like accessories or whatever. Um, so the regular battles, not really, but the boss battles, just be, the inverted style, I think, is a lot more engaging just by design. It's almost more like a puzzle game than a battle system. If that yeah. makes sense, it's. It, it, you can you can move these rings. You can rotate rotate them as circles, or you can kind of slide them like in and out in a way. It's hard to describe with words, but even though you only have two different types of movements you can do, you can actually like adjust what the layout of the rings are pretty dynamically. So there's quite a bit you can actually do with a relatively simple idea, and. But it ends up it does really mean that like battles are more like a puzzle than like an RPG battle system. And they, they it's not an RPG, just to be clear. It's so but there is a battle system. Um but yeah, it's it's one of those things like when you're playing through the game, you need coins um for various things. And you also need confetti to like fill holes in the in the world, which is sort of like this completionist thing that you're doing um for for points and completion and whatnot. And battles are actually a really easy way to get both. So it's just kind of like, let me fight this paratroopa and get some coins and confetti. And so it's kind of a different sort of um, 
like reason for battling than you would normally have in an RPG. You're not really getting stronger or gaining new skills or whatever. It's more for gaining resources. Yeah. Now I will just make a caveat that I'm like at the end of chapter one and I think you just finished chapter two and there was like six or seven of them. So like we're both still pretty early on. So there's, there's, there's still the opportunity for it to ramp up from where, from what we've seen so far, but we'll see. My last comment about Origami King so far is that one of its side objectives is to find toads that are hidden in the world and they're like crumpled up and they'll be like, they'll be folded up into like bugs or into butterflies. Or they'll be like, you'll have to pull them out between like gaps and like the craft work or whatever. And the thing is, is that there are so many of them on any given map. You might find like three, four, five, six, seven of them. Or it almost feels like that game within a game ends up being the majority of the game itself going into like a new region, like a new <laughs> building or whatever, and then figuring out like, all right, where are the toads in the screen? I got to save them all. Like it's, it's the game treats it as like this optional side content, but it's, there's so much of it that it almost feels like the thrust of the game, which I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing yet. And I don't know if Adam feels the same way, but there are a lot of collectibles and the game keeps track of toads, of chests and blocks. And so like, if you're the type of person who likes filling out lists or percentages, it has a lot of that. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It's kind of I don't know. It's kind of. Uh, but but specifically, out of all those way. things, out of all those lists, I think the toads are the most creative about it. Yeah. Um, like for instance, just to give one example, you're in this area that's like a field, and on the field there's like a flagpole that uh, like a Mario, like a classic Super Mario Bros. flagpole. And what you do is you you find some hidden blocks that allow you to jump up to the top of the flagpole and slide down like Mario always does. And when you do that, you rescue a bunch of toads. And then you realize that the flag itself on the pole is a toad folded up to look like a flag. So like it's stuff like that where it's, they're kind of hidden all over the place. And that ends up being kind of the thrust of the game for me. It's kind of like all these little micro puzzles within every single screen of the game. So I don't know if that's going to wear thin by the time I'm in chapter three and I'm still rescuing toads <laughs> from different places, but we'll see. So you went in wanting a new Paper Mario RPG, but you got like a Paper Toad finding game yeah. wrapped around paper, paper, paper Mario find the toads. <laughs> so one, one other thing I just want to mention really briefly here. I guess we're not maybe being as brief as we hoped we'd be. <laughs> but like super these Paper Mario games are silly like they're just wacky zany silly in places um it's like this in terms of story-ish content it doesn't really have like a really strong overarching narrative like the rpg games do but it does have like story like scenarios and things that happen in this game's sort of second chapter if you will the game is not explicitly set up into chapters but effectively the second part of the game there's this part where you go to like a stage show and the point of it is, like, the person running the stage show um, is actually trying to hurt Mario with, like, these antics, but Mario is too good and doesn't fall <laughs> to them. Like, for example, the first, like, scene is, ends up being, like, a, a Wild West sort of shootout sort of deal. And you have, like, Mario, like, equipped with, um, like, a really goofy-looking, like, toy gun taking on, like, a shy guy in, like, a cowboy hat. And... Um, the idea is that the shy guy is supposed to cheat and shoot first and get Mario, but Mario beats him because Mario is too good. And then like the next scenario is 
Um, it's almost like a 1930s or 40s or whatever, like gangsters, like mafia sort of thing, where you have like two gangs fighting over a woman. The woman is Birdo in this case, um, being silly. And then like this woman's actually like, I don't like either of you gang leaders. I want to be with Mario. And then the two gangs basically gang up on Mario and like, and it's got the dialogue is like reminiscent of like that sort of mobster movie. Like it kind of goes all in on it. Um, And then the third scenario is like a ballet that you take part in. It's just very, very silly. But there's stuff in chapter one too, that is like deliberately wacky. Like if you don't, if you can't, if you can't, if you want your games to be grounded and serious and like you can't, you don't, you have to allow yourself to cringe a little bit to play this game. Funny story, actually. Um, I forgot that I uh, ordered this back when it, it must have been like the second or third trailer. I ordered it. Uh, just just have it in pre-order. Be like, okay, I'll decide if I want to like actually commit to this later. And I completely forgot that I ordered it. So oh. today, I, I something comes through the door. I'm like, Ghost of Tsushima already came. It's kind of weird. Open it up. I'm like. Oh, <laughs> I guess yeah, like fine. I can play this. This is actually kind of I love a wacky game. I love a good sense of humor. I am a, a a Mario fan, so like all these, all, like the Toad, little Easter egg sort of things that play on that sort of trope. I I'm kind of in. Like it doesn't need to be an RPG for me. I don't think. Yeah, so uh, we'll see how we feel next week. But I'm enjoying it enough. Like I don't think this is gonna be like in my top ten of the year. I guess we'll see because this year has been a little light, but. It's it's been it's been fun enough, and I don't mind putting more time into it this week and seeing next week how I feel once we get you know into the second half of the game. Seeing if it really ramp if it does ramp up on some of its cool like puzzle ideas, I think it could actually end up being stronger than I anticipated going in. So we'll see. I think that kind of covers it for our introductory section, which is going on nearly two hours now. Uh, <laughs> but a, a couple of yeah. games have just come out, and. Uh, the, the the actual news, quote unquote, slate for this week is a bit light. So I think that's actually fine that we went kind of heavy on more of our pure impressions of the games we've been playing. Um, so I guess I'll just start right out into what was announced in the last seven days. So on Sunday, the day after we recorded our last podcast, Ubisoft had their forward event, which, first of all, within the forward stream itself, they did not really address anything involving the allegations of their upper management. They tweeted out kind of a statement saying that it had been pre-recorded, that they recognize the, you know, the discussion, but then they never really addressed it, which I thought kind of received a little bit of flack that they, they didn't, they did nothing on that front. They just kind of ignored it. Um, but other First than that, I guess they could have they could have recorded yeah. Eves in his office saying like a few lines. Yeah, and they could have appended, appended it to, it the, to front the front or the back right. in some way. The fact that they stated nothing almost stated more. I know that's kind of a cliche, but I think in this case that it's true. Um, anyways, so they covered Watchdog, uh, the new Watchdogs game. They ended with Far Cry Six. Uh, outside of, the only thing that was really relevant to our purview, quote unquote, is Assassin's Creed uh, Valhalla, which this was the first real extended look at playing as a female uh, Viking, female Ivor. Now, Assassin's Creed had been announced. We already kind of knew what it was. This was just the first real uh, 
extended look at gameplay. And they showed like the Vikings sieging a city or, um, you know, pillaging the town. Uh, they talked well, a bit in, about the, the mechanically, right? that was the thing that it seems that Valhalla is trying to set itself aside or makes it make it distinct from recent games, other games like Odyssey and Origins is that they have like the siege system where you kind of have like a, a team of Vikings laying siege to a castle all at once. Yeah. So that's sort of like one of Valhalla's unique things that it's trying to go for. And the gameplay kind of highlighted that. And they talked a little bit about dual wielding different weapon types. They talked a little bit about like this spear that you throw that's like attached on a chain. That's kind of like a unique mechanic, things like that. The gameplay demonstration itself was a bit rough, both in terms that it was kind of like underwhelming just in terms of content. This is my opinion, by the way, Uh, you might think otherwise, but also it, it was, it was also like the frame rate wasn't consistent it's it's a cross-gen game but it didn't really present that i think it still looks fine for what it is it just didn't really blow me away as like this is the next generation of assassin's creed it just feels more iterative it just feels like if, if we call odyssey and origins the new wave of assassin's creed this just feels like take three of that like here's yeah. assassin's creed viking flavor this time which might be fine like maybe that's all it needed to be but it's just it's not the next it's we're not stepping up to another new paradigm of next generation success tree. It's just, just another entry, which in a game with a lot of entries kind of ends up making it feel underwhelming to me. But I suppose if you have a really high affinity for this sort of this, this era of history, this, this sort of story about playing as something that somewhat, I guess that before I even talk about that, like Vikings in general, I'm not a historian, but I don't think people would really state that they were, you know, on the correct side of history, obviously they're known for pillaging and for murdering and for raping. But then like in this uh, story thing, they actually kind of try to give like this really shallow, um, like, oh, they're looking for farmland in the fertile lands <laughs> of England. And like, that's uh, like, I don't think we, we don't, a game should allow its protagonists or who you play as, like they don't have to be in the morally correct spot. You don't have to feign it. Like, Allow them just to be yeah. bastard Vikings. Like, that's fine. You don't need to give me some, like, you don't need to give me something that's like, oh, but on this, on this specific issue, they're actually in the right. Like, I don't, I don't think that was necessary. You can just say, like, they're bastards and you're playing as Vikings. Like, there you go. Like, Assassin's Creed has always been pretty lenient with what it calls history. Yeah. But, like, to me, that, that was probably the most egregious sort of, like, yeah, we're just kind of, we just want to talk about Vikings and how sometimes they're cool. When really they're not. But yeah, and that's that should be fine. Like just play as just play as Vikings. Like that's like, you don't need to give me like some weird like this is why this is actually okay. Like I don't care if it's not okay. Like whatever. Um But yeah, they have they revealed a bunch of the new artwork featuring the female protagonist. Uh they did talk about in one of the later interviews that you can actually switch between the male and female versions of Ivor on the fly, like during your game. Which I think some people have tried to extrapolate, like, what does this mean about the character? Like, maybe they're more of a legend or maybe they're more like, I've seen the word demigod thrown around. Because I guess some of the other Assassin's Creed games kind of really step into that territory, which I wouldn't know because I haven't played them. But I do think at least at least it doesn't lock you in because these are very big games. Or if you decide, like, you want to play as the other version of the character, uh, you can. 
And I guess that is one place where it's different from Odyssey, where Odyssey, they're specifically two different characters. Where here, it's the same character, but of an undetermined gender until you until you decide if it's male or female. So, uh, I've had like a pretty mixed relationship with Assassin's Creed over the past few years. Like the originals, I really like. Uh, Origins didn't do much for me. Odyssey was good, but far, far, far too big to invest enough time into. And seeing this, like, just seems like more of the same. The most interesting thing to me is the Viking taste of it. And I'm not really that into, I'm not much of a history buff. So, like, that doesn't do too much for me. I, the, the only thing that really made me go, oh, sick, was the, the dual wielding shields thing. So, like, <laughs> the, the gameplay showcase, it, obviously, it can't, like, reinvent the game. It, like it's it's not like it's it is just showing off what the game's like, but to me it just it's made me less interested in it, which is a shame. I I probably still play it because you know well I'm like a triple A game, lots of hype around yeah. it. George is going to be there, but I'm not excited for it like I am. Crash Bandicoot. I'm a, I <laughs> like I probably won't play it, but I am interested in just like keeping tabs on it. I know that sounds a little bit silly, like an auditor or whatever, but. I'm interested to see what people think about it. And then if the word of mouth is really good, I haven't played an Assassin's Creed in a while. Maybe I'll dive in, but I'm not like, I'm not willing to jump that fence right now and be like, yeah, now is the time to dive in. Like, I don't know, maybe I'll wait for the next one. Like maybe it's the the first actual quote unquote next gen Assassin's Creed, not a cross gen one. That'll be actually like where I want to jump in. Like this feels like one iteration too early. I'm just not certain. I don't know. Cause like the last time we had a cross gen Assassin's Creed was black flag and i from why i understand that that's a favorite for a lot of people like yeah. there's like a certain portion of the fan base that thinks black flag is the best game in the series as for me i've never played an assassin's creed i own black flag because i got for free on Uplay, and i own odyssey because i tried the uh google like stadia preview thing where everyone that tried it got it for free um, a friend of mine's actually going through the entire series right now. And um That so is some like tenacity. Yeah, he's been he's been taking breaks like in between <laughs> each of them, which he kinda has to because he it was especially bad because he, he gave up on this, but for like at least through uh, Assassin's Creed three, he was determined to get the platinum trophy for all of them. Oh Jesus. Uh, is the worst so, one as well god I yeah um he gave up on that and now he's just like i'm just going to play them which was even probably that is some dedication though like I, if you ask me even as like a a, a fan of assassin's creed good, yeah go play one one and two again like even though two is considered one of the best i just i don't think i could do it i couldn't put myself through all these games Personally, I played one, two, Brotherhood and Revelation. So kind of the original and then like the second trilogy, the Ezio trilogy. And after that point, I was kind of like, you know what? I've had my fill. I am. Let me take a break and I'll get back to it later. And I ended that break ended up just being like years. (laughs) That's kind of where I'm at too a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. It's supposed to be really good though. Yeah, Assassin's Creed games myself. I mean, for one thing, they're decently uh length games like they're pretty long like especially if you're doing some of the side content which from i understand like in most of the games like the side content not just like the uh towers that obviously become a meme about ubisoft oh yeah 
games, but like the actual side stories and whatnot are like one of the main reasons to play them and all that sort of stuff. It's not like something like Castlevania, per se, where obviously I can play through a Castlevania game in like two days because they're not that long. Like Assassin's Creed, like obviously they're not super long, at least the original ones, but if you really want to get the most out of them, you kind of have to sink some time into them. Yeah, and there's like an opportunity cost where if you play an Assassin's Creed game, you're giving up some a couple other games you could have played. I know that's true of every game, but it just seems like Assassin's Creed is scaled kind of to the extreme on that end. This is slightly like going into a tangent, which I seem to have done a lot this podcast, but I remember the days when Assassin's Creed 2 came out and I swear to God, I lauded that as the best game I'd ever played. I was like, oh my God, games can't get any better. Like, this is incredible. And now looking back, I'm like, I, I don't know if I even really like Assassin's Creed 2 that much now. Like, besides nostalgia, like, I don't know. <laughs> it just it just it's, makes me laugh at how... I, I also played, like, 2 in uh, Brotherhood. It's just been so long that I don't know if any of my opinions are valid anymore. It's just like... Yeah, I played that years and years ago, and I liked it at the time. I haven't looked back on it. Like I haven't even watched gameplay of that game or seen gameplay of that game in years. So like I don't even remember yeah. anything other than like the base enjoyment that I got out of it. But uh, yeah, Ama, coming out the November seventeenth, cross gen. It seems like in every way, in terms of PS4, PS5, Xbox Series X, etc. We also got news this week about Crystal Chronicles Remastered, um, with the biggest quote-unquote bombshell being that the game will not support local co-op in any way, which has been kind of a divisive um, sticking point for a lot of people, according to like our Twitter impressions, where people were looking forward to playing this with you know their family or their significant other, and now if they want to do that, they have to have two copies of the game and just play online. Um, well, no. Because there's the uh, only one person needs to own it. Remember? Yeah, yeah that's, that's the thing. They, they 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 announced. Uh, yeah, they they, they kind of have this system that they announced uh, last week or the week before, where anyone can play it for free for like the first three missions, and then if someone purchases it, then they have uh, access to the rest of the game. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam. If one person's purchased it and other people play with them that haven't, they can the, the paid player can bring the others along. Is that how it's set up? So it's 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 actually kind of weirdly worded. I actually didn't notice this at first, but if you purchase the game and you host a session and then three people who have like freed versions of the game play along with you, you can play 13 of the dungeons. And I believe the game has 14 dungeons. So it's basically oh. like you can play 90% of the game. <laughs> That's um, tricky. Where they're like, if yeah. you want to get this last bit, you can't have one paid player bring it <laughs> along. You, you gotta play for it. Oh, yeah. so you can't do that. Um, but anyways, they've they've been kind of coy about the local co-op multiplayer pretty much the entire time. They've never explicitly stated like play the game with your friends, you know, locally. They've they've never said that anywhere. They never mentioned it at all. Like people sort of just assumed it would be there because the original game kind of focused on that. But basically, they just admitted on the Japanese Twitter account over the last week that the online or the, the multiplayer component in this remaster is online only. So it's you only have to have one you only have you only have to have one copy of the game to play online. 
with a group of people, but that means you also have to have like um, multiple consoles. You have to have either people playing along on like a second Switch or a second PS4 or on their phones. They crossplay, um, right? Like, there's no local. So, like, let's just say you have a Switch and you buy the game. Um, you can play the game on that Switch, but if you want other people to join you, they have to have like their own Switch or PS4 or phone it, that they could do that with. It is crossplay, and the um, one of the Twitter accounts—I forget if it was specifically the Crystal Chronicles account or one of Square Enix other accounts—they did like this cool artwork where like a Chocobo, a Tonberry, or what other things. Like one was playing on Switch, one was playing on a phone. Etc. Um, what were you going to say earlier, James? Um, I'm just surprised that there's not even like local ad hoc multiplayer support on Switch. Yeah, and some people have stated that. Well, in the original game, everyone had their own. If you played in multiplayer, you couldn't play with normal controllers. You had to play with the Game Boy Advance acting as your controller. And on the Game Boy Advance, we'll have like your inventory screen and your little mini map and things like that, almost kind of like a prototype to the DS or whatever. And so, of course, it wouldn't work in local multiplayer here. But the thing is, is like other games like Diablo 3, it's a little bit clunky, but anyone can just pull up their own individual character sheet at the expense of other people, you know, not being able to play while you're in your menu. It's not the most convenient thing ever, but like it's been done where you can play four player co-op on Diablo 3. And when someone presses start or Y or triangle or whatever it is, and they bring up their menu, character menu, everyone else just kind of has to be patient for a bit. But, like, if you're playing locally, they're within the same room as you. Like, so it's not like this, you know, it, it can work. It's, it's, I feel like people that are leaning on that explanation. But I do it, think, I do think in Crystal Chronicles, you are pulling up the menu more frequently. Hmm. Like in Diablo 3, and I, I played this with you locally along with two others. So I know what it's like. You do a mission, and then basically at the end of the mission, it's like, all right, mission's over. Now, player one, you go to the menu and do all your looting and skills. Now, player two, now you go to the menu and do all your looting and, you know, item management. Now, player three, you kind of just, after every mission, you can basically just do that. And, you know, you just you just accept, accept that you just kind of have to do it in turns. There might be other, there might be other considerations that maybe I'm not technically knowledgeable enough to know about how, like, local co-op would work, considering you can also have people playing on phones or something like that. I don't know. I'm sort of in a place where I live by myself and I would have been playing this online anyway, but I'm trying to like have that mindset where obviously not everyone's in a situation where they, this is actually like a legit bummer that they can't play with their significant other. Yeah, personally, I would be playing it online. So it's like to me personally, selfishly, this doesn't matter. But And maybe Square thought the same way where they, they looked at their, their data and said uh, only a very small percentage of people would be playing locally. And we don't know how to implement it, and we don't have the we don't have the resources to do that, so we're just not going to. And they must have made the decision that it, they thought that it was the better one, obviously, because that's what they went with. So we did also get like they also did just like the, the standard like magazine release where they talk about the characters and things like that. Now none of these characters are actually new. They talk about the other caravans that you run into and they're you know what they're comprised of. So if you want to read all that, that's obviously all up on the website. Uh, but I think obviously the multiplayer note was kind of like what dominated the discussion over the last um, week. They they did also talk about like the artifacts that you pick up and all the different dungeon locations and things like that. And I'm still excited for this. Uh, but obviously there's that caveat of no local multiplayer. So uh, George, I'll let you talk about this one because you're the one that covered it. 
but we got some information about uh, the Avengers War Table for July 29th. What, what is what exactly is this? Because you've been more on top of what this game's uh, this you know their, their release cycle than I have. Yeah, so uh, the War Tables are like a standard update videos. So they've they've only done one so far, but like it seems to be like their their branding for hey here's like what's coming in Avengers. Uh, and this this one's only really significant one because obviously we're, we're covering it, but this this one that's coming out July 29th uh, will detail stuff on the beta, which we kind of already know from a Twitter post. But at the end of the last war table, they kind of promised that the second war table would reveal the first uh, post-launch hero. Um, so, like in my head, that's that's actually a pretty interesting thing. That is enough for me to want to watch it find out uh so they also detailed some beta stuff which when i was covering this i kind of had a hard time summing up because there's so many different caveats to like how you actually get access to this beta uh but i'll run it down quick uh well, if it, you play like... on playstation then on august 7th if you pre-order the game on playstation you get the beta um but if you pre-order on Xbox or PC, you get the beta a week later on August 17th. Console exclusive beta access for a week. Yeah. <laughs> then the PlayStation open beta. So if you didn't pre-order, this is an open beta. Starts on the same day as the Xbox and PC pre-order beta. And then the general open beta, which I assume also counts for like the PlayStation 1 as well, is on August 21st. So like this three week time slot is just like the Avengers beta time slot, but you like to get on the very first one you have to pre-order on PlayStation. The second one is open to PlayStation and pre-orders for the other consoles, and the last one is everyone. So like it's just it's really asinine. I, yeah. I get that this sort of thing happens. It would, it would have been a lot simpler if there wasn't like a it's like the PlayStation bonus that you get like an extra week. Yeah. It, you basically you basically simple. have a pre-order beta and then an open beta and then PlayStation like well we got a partnership so on both of those two counts we're going to be a week ahead so then it becomes this weird like triage of beta access and console specific specificity about which one goes where like, uh. as someone who like I I would be most advantaged because I'm mostly a PlayStation player so like I look at this and I go oh cool like fine, I, I get yeah. this sort of earlier like. For Xbox players who really want to play the Avengers, like that's just that's just kind of sucks. And the state that this game is in, or looks to be in, where it's like pretty divisive, and I wouldn't say people are fully on board with it. I would just have an open beta from the seventh to the twenty-first, and like get as many people playing, get as much interest as possible, get as much feedback as possible, and go from there, rather yeah, than because, be like, because oh. Xbox and PC players will then have that week of beta footage to like you're basically giving them an opportunity to opt out if they want exactly rather than rather than have everyone at the starting gate at the same time saying like all right everyone form your own opinion now play our game go <laughs> like yeah. what are they really gaining by allowing i'd say a third but let's say half of their player base to play early i don't i guess obviously they're the ones that you know have the the team of marketers and economists or whatever on their team and not us so they must have decided that it was worth it, but it's just hard to see from our position. It's just confusing, but yeah. the main takeaway is that August is the month of betas for Marvel Avengers, if you're interested in that. 
and the end of this month we'll find out more details about what's in the beta, more details about the game's launch, and most excitingly, another character we'll get to play as, which, off the top of my head, uh, who would be cool? Uh, they've previously talked about Hank Pym, like the original Ant-Man, and like that was so long ago, and it was sort of implied that he was playable. So my assumption is that it's him still. I could be completely wrong. Maybe it'll be someone awesome like Black Panther. That would kind of blow my mind. I'm assuming that if I were, if I was a marketing person at Square Enix, I would be looking at this and going, right, who can be really, really hype? Who would be like worth getting the game for if you're a Marvel fan? And Hank Pym, cool as he is, wouldn't do that for me. Right. Black Panther would do that for me. So I'm hoping they, they don't just make it Hank Pym. It probably will be, but I guess we'll see July 29th. Yeah, just a little bit of candid background for anyone listening. Like, we weren't sure for the longest time whether or not we'd cover Avengers. It was one thing that uh, our 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 boss, quote unquote, Alex Donaldson, wanted to cover, but we weren't really sure if it really fit our purview. And then George basically basically pushed the envelope and said, "You know what? I'll cover this." So we're covering it. If <laughs> that's <laughs> that's basically the bottom line. Like, we're not arbiters of the genre or whatever. Uh, if someone wants to cover it, and we can we can justify it to some small extent we will so we will keep eyes on this basically through george well I, at least personally i'm going to live vicariously through you in terms of how marvel <laughs> Good luck. Uh, how marvel avengers ends up shaping out we also got details this week about a possible sequel to atelier riza called Atelier Ryza 2, Lost Legends, and the Secret Fairy. It appeared on an Australian classification board, which... Which is ironic as hell, considering the series' history with the Australian ratings board. Oh, go into detail on that. I'm not certain what you mean. Um, one of the Arlen games on PS3 um, got an R18 rating for uh, the Australian ratings board, which uh, basically meant that back then you couldn't really play it in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> it um, couldn't be sold in stores. Yeah, it was it was a huge meme back in the day. Uh, I guess I'm not that um, I don't have my finger on the pulse on this series, but there are some websites that really like to scour like trademarks and ratings and classifications, or recently Twitter handles. And sometimes, like our website, tends not to dive too deeply into that so much because a lot of it is just kind of. like... I think a classification is a little bit more interesting than a trademark. Because trademarks yeah, but, uh, yeah. filed for a number of a variety of things. It could be a brand new game, or it could just be an offhand mentioned in some place, or it could just be that they just want to be the exclusive place that can oh, use that trademark. name. But a classification means like there's actually has to be a thing. So yeah, like I, I was gonna say, like obviously we decided to cover this because of what you said there, and also because it's kind of just an interesting little footnote that this would be like the the Atelier games are kind of designed as like trilogies in terms of their how they're organized it's almost it's pretty much a yearly release and they they generally kind of group up into trilogies with a few spin-offs but this would be the first one that's and at least in my understanding that's clearly marked as a definitive sequel starring the same alchemist so i guess i am not familiar with the older series there was like an atelier iris one two and three but i guess even those don't necessarily have like the same protagonist even though the titles are like that but in any case there's two things that are interesting about this classification. One, it's Atelier Ryza 2. It's been a long time since so they've just had like a two 
in a game sequel because usually it just follows a new character and the title is just the name of the character. So that's one interesting part. It's like, okay, it's a sequel. The second interesting part, or maybe related, is that it probably stars the same character, Ryza. But also the fact that this is classified on an Australian board before it's even announced in Japan, maybe they're getting to the point where this series, they can potentially do a worldwide simultaneous release. They've been kind of inching closer and closer with the original Atelier Ryza last year. I believe it was about a month between Japanese release and English release, which is the shorter, shortest it's been. So just, maybe now it's like simultaneous yeah, just, is the goal. I mean, that's speculation, but maybe. Yeah, I just looked it up and the gap between the Japanese release. So it came out September 26th, 2019 in Japan and October 29th in uh, North America. Yeah, so about a month. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Seems interesting. I do know that Ryza was the best-selling Atelier game, like, so far. Like, obviously, for uh, very specific reasons, it uh, kind of uh, gained some attention. But uh, it, it has a, it has a kind of a fan service slant to it where people thought the character was cute in various ways. So people bought it, which it was. But, like, but even, the, um, even Elizabeth, who reviewed it for us, who's a fan of the series, she didn't think it was, like, her favorite. She actually liked the one that came out the year before. What was the one that came out in 2018? <laughs> it actually came out like four months before. Uh, Lua. Three Atelier games that Gus released last year. There was Lulua, which was kind of a like follow-up to the Arlen trilogy, which I guess it's a quadrilogy now, because four games. There was um, Nelk and the, Myster- and the Mysterious Alchemist, or what, something like that. Nelk, which was a spin-off that was kind of like a almost like a city builder, I think. It was weird. And then there was Ryza. So yeah, like, I, was, I was just saying that Elizabeth liked Lulua more, but she did also like Ryza as a fan of the series. Just She's played all of it'll them. It'll be I interesting like. to see how well a sequel does, because it's one of those things, like, I think a lot of people decided that Ryza was a good place to jump in to try it. Um, but with, as with any sequel, sequels almost never surpass the original in terms of like financial commercial success for various reasons. Like people who jumped in with Ryza, maybe they didn't like it. Maybe they didn't finish it. So they don't want to buy a sequel. So it'll be interesting to see how well it could do. One thing I will say is that I hope they do a reprint for the original um, game when, when this happens. Cause I, I feel like it's pretty safe to say that this rumor slash leak is legit. It makes sense. Um, one thing I do know is that I've been wanting to pick up uh, Ryza, not to play it immediately, because I want to go through the rest of the Dust Trilogy first. Um, probably not going to play in the, any of the Mysterious Trilogy, because I hear that it's kind of hit or miss. But, um, the problem is, is that the Switch version, at least the North American Switch version, is super expensive if you want to get a copy now, because the game sold well, but they absolutely refuse to do a reprint for the switch version i'm just on amazon right now and it's being sold by extra sellers new 350 dollars used jesus wait, that doesn't make any sense there's a used copy being sold for 500 dollars. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was i was thinking like 90 dollars 100 300 apparently the ps4 version got reprinted i saw something mentioning that but and you can buy that for 40 it's like okay that's nice but yeah, the Switch version is really pricey right now, because why not? 
Yeah, so I'm hoping they finally do a reprint for it, but I'm guessing they won't. I, I've heard that the European, yeah, the European version you can buy for like 75 bucks, which isn't great, but if you want to get a copy and it is region for, oh, there's a used copy. Um, no, there's a new copy uh, for 55, uh, 54 bucks. But still, it's, it's still kind of, of your mileage will vary depending on who happens to be and selling still it imp- right and, you're st- and you're still importing it at that point. <laughs> Just yeah. to get the just to get the expected price, it's crazy. It's just but anyways, yeah, yeah. Atelier Rise Two, it's not confirmed or officially announced, but uh, we are we're reasonably confident that it that it is real. We'll, we'll see uh, as more detail. We'll see like when the details for those are actually planned to come out on an official basis. The last two news topics for this uh, week are indie titles. So turn off if that's not your thing. Uh, one of them is a tactical RPG other side from Hocus, from Focus Home Entertainment. Uh, this one we've covered before. It's kind of got this really almost like Bloodborne-esque uh, sort of mood to it with this really distinct color palette that's all almost entirely black, white, and red. So it's kind of got this really specific theme. Uh, and it's, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how really else to explain it, but they, there's a new gameplay trailer just talking about the premise. and Here, about the let me sisters that you control. I, I added these games to our list here to talk about just because we haven't mentioned them before and they're coming out oh, I thought in we a couple had. of weeks. Uh, if we did, it was kind of Brief. very quickly mentioned. Um, Other Side is being developed by a French indie de- developer named like Lightbulb Crew being published by Focus Home Interactive. And it's a tactical RPG featuring, like you said, a monochromatic black and white color palette with red kind of as its, you know, accent color, if you will. Um, it uses like a timeline mechanic rather than turn-based. So it's kind of interesting in that in that sense. It's like a grid, but you move like on a timeline rather than, you know, my turn, your turn sort of deal. Um, at the very least, it has an interesting kind of palette and premise. So I'm it's kind of caught my eye and like, hopefully the mechanics underneath it are good. You know, they might, they might be terrible. Who knows? But um, it's one, it's a game I'm interested in trying out. And then another tactical RPG kind of releasing around the same time on July 31st is Fae Tactics. This one looks to be more um, inspired by like Final Fantasy Tactics Advance in a way, kind of like Felseal only um, it's got that similar sort of sprite style. And this one's focus has like a mantra, a monster catching element to it where you kind of you befriend Faye and kind of battle with them in this game. So this game's actually been like in development for a while. Um and it's kind of finally coming out. So it's one of those things that you might have been following it for years now. Uh and it's just kind of been continuously delayed and we'll see. It's also coming to Switch later, but the PC releases first. So just um, I'm interested in it. But I don't know if I'll just, have time for it right away. Just to state it clearly, Other Side comes out on July 28th for PS4, Xbox One, and PC, and Switch later. And then Fate Tactics comes out on July 31st on PC, Switch later. Sorry, Switch players. So yeah, we'll have these two tactics games by the end of the month. Uh, with two different, very different aesthetics to them. Uh, I, I'm kind of interested in Fate Tactics. So maybe I'll just play that and you play other side and then we can compare notes later. I don't know. <laughs> I just recently played through Felseal, which was the other tactics like that came out last year, like last February, I think. 
and they had an update to it that released just a few weeks ago that I played through. It was fine. I reviewed that game last year and I thought it was just merely okay. And it's been a long enough time since I played a Final Fantasy Tactics like game, kind of similar to uh, the story, like the Assassin's Creed thing, where it's been a while since I played it. So now I'm kind of interested again. Same with Paper Mario, kind of a common theme. It's been a while since I played the, the tactics style grid based game. So Fate Tactics looks like it's kind of up my alley. Maybe play it and squeeze it in before the big, you know, fall releases come out. And that kind of covers it for news, able to blitz through that within a very short amount of time. Is there anything else that you guys wanted to talk about uh, that came up this week before we start closing? Out? I think this podcast is long enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we had a, a bunch of cool discussions about some newer games like Ghosts and Paper Mario and some of the other games we've been playing like Castlevania and Fallout. So I'm 100% okay with going more into deep impressions when the new slate is light. We'll see if we'll be able to do a more even balance as we see, like, maybe we'll finally get that Nintendo Direct that people are, like, promising will be happening soon for the last month. The Xbox thing is uh, next week, right? Oh, yeah, that's true, too. There are two events events next week that are worth keeping an eye out for. One is Bandai Namco has a play anime event. Our favorite. I, I assume most of it is going to be like anime fighting games or whatever, but I do expect probably Digimon Survive to show up. They, they kind of throw that in with their anime titles. Um, maybe Tales of Arise. I don't know. Maybe it was recently delayed, but maybe they have something to show. I, I have a feeling it's going to be more licensed stuff, but there's that event on Wednesday. And then yeah, the Xbox event is Thursday, the 23rd. I, I'm, I'm getting the day right. Right. Um, and uh, yes, for, yes. yeah, it's first. Yeah. And that game, that event is supposed to be like just games. It's not about the console or, you know, charts or whatever. It's supposed to be just here's our game lineup. So I don't know if they'll show anything new or if it's just going to be stuff we know about. Maybe a big Halo reveal because that's supposed to be a launch title. Yeah. We'll see. So on the RPG front, there's been rumors for Fable for a while. We might see what NXL is working on. We might see what Obsidian's working on, whether it's a new game or they did early in the year talk about DLC on its way for uh, The Outer Worlds. But that's not really a Microsoft title, so I don't know if we'll see it here. Um, I mean, but they kind of most importantly, Psychonauts 2, as we know, I'm excited for. That'd be good. Yeah, maybe that. We'll see. And then uh, we'll also see like whether or not like uh, they have any information about like some of the stuff they're partnered with, like Elden Ring, if that's got like Microsoft marketing behind it, obviously, even though it's not exclusive, this might be the place where we see more information about that. We'll see. So maybe next week we'll have plenty to talk about other than impressions on games we've been playing. So, but we'll also follow up with final thoughts on Ghost of Tsushima and Paper Mario, maybe. So hopefully more positive from both ends. Yeah, we'll see. And then we do plan on uh, doing a recording later in this week for the third entry for our casual mode series. So if you haven't checked it out, we've been uploading new uh, little gameplay snippets about an hour long. We're planning on having them be like 40 minutes to an hour of just games we're playing, casually chatting about them and throwing up videos on our YouTube channel. We've done one for Valkyrie Profile, uh, and we've done one for this early access game, Record of Lotus War, Digit and Wonder Labyrinth. So 
We'll have a third entry soonish. Another seemingly weekly series from us. <laughs> but uh, you can always find us on our website at rpgsite.net. We have this review for Void Terrarium. We also have some early access impressions from for Ooblets. Uh, a little bit outside of our area, but one of our contributors wanted to post something and we're given the blessing to, so they did. Uh, we obviously have a couple of news stories that we talked about in terms of Assassin's Creed and um, Crystal Chronicles and all that. We have all the links to our podcast underneath Tetracast. If you search for that, you can get access to our Discord channel from the link on our homepage. And as always, we you will hear from us seemingly next week. So until then, take care. <laughs>